second. India have won the Test match. India have won the series. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is your host Siddhartha Vaidyanathan. I'm at Sidvi on Twitter and it's a real honor for me to welcome our guest for the show, a former international cricketer who played 30 tests and 50 one dayers for his country, but someone who as it turned out is remembered more for an act of immense moral courage. when his country co-hosted the world cup in 2003 uh when he chose to risk his career and as it happened his life because he felt the need to speak up for what he believed in a very very warm welcome to the former zimbabwe fast bowler and historically the first black cricketer to play test cricket for zimbabwe henry olonga thanks so much for joining me henry well so doctor it's my pleasure thanks for having me and uh, i hope your listeners will enjoy it I'm sure they will and uh, I'm sure they would um uh, some of them of course are young and may not know much uh, may not have followed much of your career but I will tell them about it as we go along. Uh we are here today to talk about what I consider to be one of the finest books written by a cricketer. It's called Blood, Sweat and Treason and it was published in 2010. uh written by Henry of course and Henry is also coming out with an audio version of the book it will perhaps be released in a month or so and um where he himself is narrating the story and uh, I can't wait for that enough and I can't recommend this book highly enough it's an inspiring cricket story it uh, but to begin with but then it goes so much beyond cricket into philosophy into politics into sociology and also the very essence of what it means to stand up for what one believes in i do not know of uh, any other cricket book uh, i mean by a cricketer at least that has quotes from edmund burke uh, reinhold neber as well as poems from leo buscalia uh, rudyard kipling and i'm yet to encounter another aut- cricketing autobiography that's so erudite in the way it handles the fault fault lines beyond the boundary now as i said many of you listeners may not be, remember much from the 2003 world cup some of you might have been toddlers back then or some of you might not have really been following uh, the happenings around the zimbabwe cricket team at that time but uh, it i must mention here that the big uh, story of that world cup was how uh, henry olonga and his teammate who is perhaps zimbabwe's greatest cricketer andy flower uh you know wore black armbands or black cello tape bands to when zimbabwe took the field against namibia for their opening world cup match now uh this was done as a symbolic protest because there was a white man in andy flower and the black man in henry olonga the first black cricketer as i said who represented zimbabwe no less speaking their minds about what they thought was going on in the country now there are just two bits that i want to quote which will give you an essence of what they were trying to say the first one is i quote it is impossible to ignore what is happening in zimbabwe although we are just professional cricketers we do have a conscience and feelings we believe that if we remain silent that will be taken as a sign that either we do not care or we condone what is happening in zimbabwe we believe that it is important to stand up for what is right and the second bit that i want to quote which of course went on to make headlines all over the world 
was that they said in all the circumstance in all the circumstances we have decided that we will each wear a black armband for the duration of the world cup in doing so we are mourning the death of democracy in our beloved zimbabwe uh close quote now this of course triggered an extraordinary response including death threats to henry and his family which he has written about in detail in the book and led him to announce his retirement toward the end of the world cup and also leaving zimbabwe uh from because he was fearing for his life uh he spent some time in south africa before some benefactors helped him fly to england where he made a home for the next several years uh it is also in england where he wrote this terrific book i'm assuming so henry after this long introduction i would like to ask you about this book it came out about in 2010 which is 7 years after the world cup 7 years after you quit zimbabwe and after you quit cricket and it seems to have been a culmination of a journey of deep introspection because it's not written in haste at all it's written with immense thought so can you talk a bit about writing the book and the motivations behind that well um i think initially it wasn't actually my idea it was the idea of uh, someone who was managing me at the time i had a management company that said listen we think it's a good idea for you to write a book we think it'll help get your profile out there etc so they were looking for more business from their perspective um and initially i was like oh i don't think i've lived enough i actually i think that's one of my first objections was i don't think i've got a, a big story to tell um and they disagreed well, if only you had known <laughs> well, well i mean i'm now 46 so back then you know i was obviously in my sort of mid to to late 30s and so uh with the passage of time i think i can look back and reflect and say well i think i did have a few things to say but anyway um eventually i came round to the idea and they got me in touch with what's called a ghost writer and a ghost writer is someone who helps you write your story because i'm not a you know i'm not an author i i i obviously studied english to a high standard at school but i don't think It, you can compare writing your life story to writing an essay so i obviously would need some help in that regard and a man called derek clemens uh helped me tell my story so i went over to his house for maybe a couple of days and i just told him my story from start to that time which was 2009 2010 i just it was verbal diarrhea i just told him everything i could remember and then of course with the passage of time um we added things refined things deleted things and eventually came up with um uh, blood sweat and trees and my story which uh, you've referred to so the story basically encompasses my life from my birth in zambia to emigrating to kenya and then while we were there experiencing the breakdown of my mom and dad's marriage and then ending up settling in zimbabwe where i went to school and that was the foundation from which i was able to get involved in cricket athletics uh, rugby uh, stage as in uh, music and drama and it was it was the country that i think of all the countries i've lived in really defined me as a person and helped me figure out what i wanted to do with my life it was they were my formative years i was extremely lucky that i went to good schools and i had good teachers good coaches and uh, i was also given leadership positions in the schools i was head boy in junior school and high school i uh, 
I don't know if that makes any sense to people in America or all over the world, but Zimbabwe, country I grew up in mostly, was a British colony. So it was an old-style education system. You had headmasters. You had uh, We even had corporal punishment back in the day. And you had head prefects and head boys, etc. Uh, it was a boys-only school. Um, but that's also where I, I had a coach who um, saw the potential in me to be a, a, a decent cricketer at a decent standard, and he kept encouraging me uh, to continue pursuing cricket because I had a lot of interests at school. I had a lot of passions, and I, at one point I was going to be uh, an athlete. I wanted to run in the Olympics representing Zimbabwe or Kenya. I think my promise lay in decathlon because I could run fast, I could jump, I could throw. Um, my one weakness might have been the pole vault, but I think everything else I was pretty good at. Um, and unfortunately, that coach that saw potential in me as uh, in, in athletics, uh, his name was Everton Squire. He ended up leaving the school and um, replacing him was a man called Roy Jones, who was my first 11 cricket coach. And he's the one who sat me down one day um, at, uh, at the basketball courts at Plumtree High School overlooking the cricket pitch. And he, he chatted to me for 30 or so minutes. And he just gave me a vision. He gave me this idea that I think I hadn't really taken seriously. You know, I was just playing cricket and enjoying it and not sure what I wanted to do when I left school. And he sold it to me. He said, listen, you can travel the world, um, get paid for doing what you enjoy and, you know, make a name for yourself. So um, I, I lay a lot of the responsibility of my rise in cricket due to him. But of course, there, you know, this is a long story. There were lots of other people involved. Heath Street's father um, saw potential in me when I was about 17, got me playing for a club site in the big city because my school was uh, about 100 kilometers out of the city. They'd come pick me up. They'd drop me off. They'd, um, you know, they'd help me. They promoted me as a schoolboy into the provincial team. Um, Heath Streak himself, of course. There was uh, some other fabulous players. Another man called Wayne James, who uh, many people wouldn't know Wayne James, but put it this way, if Andy Flower didn't exist, he probably would have been Zimbabwe's wicketkeeper batsman. And so he and many other friends and teammates would take me, uh, pick me up from school. Uh, I'd play the matches, they'd drop me off and were constantly encouraging me to grow in this world of cricket, playing amongst the big boys. And cutting a long story short, a, a year after, not even a year, a few months after leaving high school, I was making my debut against Pakistan. And it was bittersweet for me because, of course, uh, it was the start of my career, which is a great moment politically, socially. It was very significant. First black player, as you said, I was the youngest at the time. That got surpassed later, but I was. Um, and I, uh, it was our first test victory over Pakistan. But I also got called for throwing in that first match. So it was a, a weird debut by any measure, I think. And I ended up, as a result of that, having to remodel my action. So I went all over the world. The first place I went to was, was, was India. And I spent three or so weeks at the MRF Pace Foundation in what was called Madras uh, back then. It's now called Chennai, of course. But I spent some time there with some wonderful coaches, a man called Shaker. Um, I yeah, forget Shaker. his first name. 
Um, yeah. I don't know if he's still involved in cricket. I'm sure he must be somewhere as a coach or something. He may yes. even have retired. <laughs> but um, he was very good, uh, as was, uh, of course, Joel Garner and Dennis Lilly, who also came. Uh, they only came for a short time, maybe a few days. But the MRF Pace Foundation was a masterstroke by the uh, by the Indian cricket authorities because, of course, they recognized that they lacked serious um, depth in, in the fast bowling department. And so they got, um, the, the, not only did they get MRF, uh, this rubber factory uh, company to, <laughs> to, to sponsor it, um, I'm guessing billions of tires in India are MRF, <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> anyway, with all the, the cash reserves they had, they, they, it was a masterstroke. They set up this academy and they got Dennis Lilly, arguably one of the greatest fast bowlers of all time, and Joel Garner, part of one of the most potent pace attacks in history, to come over and give of their time. I'm sure it was paid. Um, but give of their time to to help the next generation of Indian bowlers. And, of course, India then opened it up um, way back in, in 95 to the rest of the world. I'm not sure if it's still going. I'm not sure if it still opens up to the rest of the world. But I was there for maybe three weeks myself, a, a young bowler called Darlington Matambanadzo and a, a man called Brian Strang. And Brian Strang ended up playing test cricket as well. Brian Strang was there because he was a very, um, a very accurate bowler, but he was very, um, he was lacking in speed, shall I say. Um, he was a medium pace bowler, and they wanted him to be just a little bit quicker. Um, in, in my Being case, in I India, familiar with the Mata Bonanzo name, by the way, was he Everton's brother? He was. He was Everton's younger brother. He was. He was. Everton won't mind me saying this, but Darlington was better looking than him, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and Darlington was an all-rounder, whereas Everton tended to be just a bowler. And I played, you know, uh, he was my contemporary. I don't know how often we played together in test matches, but we certainly played around about the same time. And he wasn't in the game for long, Everton. Um, maybe two or three years, and then they stopped picking him, and then he moved on in life, you know. Um, but he was a lovely guy. Bo both of them were really good super players. They went to school in the capital city at a school called Eaglesvale. But I went to school, obviously, in, in a different province. Um, we weren't as close to uh, the establishment because cricket was run in Harare, the capital city. And so they were in the thick of everything. All the coaches, all the administration happened in the capital city. But, but they were two promising players and could... And I played Zimbabwe schools cricket with them as well. I'm jumping ahead in the story, of course. But when I, when I, when I played... Uh, Zimbabwe schools cricket in my last year, I think, I was picked for the national side at schoolboy level. Uh, both of them were picked, if my memory serves me right. Um, in any case, uh, I was there for two, three weeks. Um, it was a, I talk about how it was a cultural shock for me in my book because, of course, it was uh, uh, India's just full of color. There's a lot of uh, goodness there and there's, uh, there's also a lot of stuff that makes your stomach churn a little bit because there's a lot of poverty um, of course there's also a lot of suffering uh, people get sick there's, there's all sorts of things that uh, are very confronting and um, it, was, it was really eye-opening for me to travel to a place like that now as a young boy I had traveled to Europe um, to 13 different countries as a, 
an eight or nine year old, I think. And uh, of course, Europe is a totally different experience. It's very clean. It's very modern. Uh, to a large degree, everything just works uh, very well. But India, um, of course, has pockets of of that sophistication, but back in '95, in in a, a small part of Madras, it was very eye-opening. And and I'm not saying that in a negative way necessarily. It was just it was good to go to a different part of the world that was kind of similar to Zimbabwe, s- struggling with similar issues, but but also had this great passion for the game. Um, of course, India's history in Test cricket and One Day Internationals goes back to the '70s and '80s. Uh, we didn't have any of that heritage. We didn't have the history. We were starting to build it in the early 90s. I think we played our first couple of tests um, against Sri Lanka and India in the you know early 90s. And then... India was the first, um, yeah. India was the first, was it? Yeah. Um, I'm not a historian. I, I just know they were, <laughs> they were one, of the, one of the first. Um, but anyway, it, it was very... It, it was very... Um, it was very... It was a really good experience for me to work with these great players and to be able to film my action for the first time as well. Because, you know, we take it for granted now that you can just pull your phone out and you can record your golf swing or your, you know, your bowling action at high frame rates and you can slow it down. We didn't have that facility back in the day. Uh, You didn't have your own personal camcorder. I mean, we were amateurs when I started. I didn't have extra money. I was out of school. I didn't have a job. So... It was so good to be able to look at the camera uh, or, or the footage on the TV screen and say, ah, that, okay, that's what I'm doing. That's what I look like to other people. Because you don't know what you look like in your own body. You have to see it. And so uh, cutting a long story short, that, that was the first step in, in three different places I traveled to to sort out my action. In 96, I, I, I went to Australia, and they also had an academy. I think it still runs here as well, but obviously it's moved around the country. So um, when I came, it was still in Adelaide, and it was run by Rod Marsh and a few other coaches. Uh, one of them was called Richard Doan. He was the biomechanics coach. I think he's actually in America now, uh, coaching cricket at, at a high level somewhere. Um, another man called Wayne Phillips, and of course Dennis Lilly came again. And uh, you know, here's the here's the funny thing is is as I'm writing my book or doing my audio book, I should say, um, I'm starting to to realize how many people that I worked with back in the day have died. Yeah. And of course, Rod Rod Marsh is gone. Um, and then the next year, I went to another academy in South Africa, and that was run by a man called Clive Rice. And he's dead. Yeah. So, you know, obviously the older you get, the more it's likely that a lot of the, your, your heroes and teachers and coaches are going to pass away. But it's, it's so interesting. Another man from the Academy in South Africa was a guy called Hilton Ackerman. He was H.D. Ackerman's father. H.D. Ackerman, H.D. Yeah. Ackerman played for South Africa, and I don't know whether he played T20 or anything like that. But he's a name that cricketers may know. Um, in any case, um, that was my, the, my final academy was in South Africa. Um, and, and in 98 was when I really came back into the sport. So I carried on playing. They kept picking me here and there. You know, I, in 96, I played against South Africa in a one-day tournament. 
I played against England in the Test Series. Um, and then 97, I, I, actually 97, I think I missed out a bit of cricket there because I injured my wrist. So I spent most of that time at the academy, but then I, I had a broken wrist, which I'd, I'd, um, I'd received the injury when I played in a, in a warm-up match against England. And I didn't know I had a broken wrist, but I played throughout the series, the Test Series. I picked up some wickets, but I didn't score any runs. Um, but I didn't know I'd broken my, my, my wrist. I, I knew it was hurt, but I didn't think it was broken. I thought it was a bad sprain. And so when I was at the academy in South Africa, we did a medical and um, I just mentioned to the doctor, oh, I've got a sore wrist. And they said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. And then I, one, part of our training was to do some um, work with a punching bag, you know, a boxing punching mm-hmm. bag. Yeah. And it started to aggravate my wrist quite a bit. And it, it's the first time it actually got really painful. And so I mentioned it to the doctor. They did an x-ray and they said, oh, you've broken your scaphoid bone. Now, the scaphoid bone is, is, is one of a number of bones in the body that if you break them, it's very bad because the blood supply comes in on one end. And if, if you break it, it doesn't get to the end that's broken off. So, um, and it doesn't heal itself. It, it, it has to, there has to be some medical intervention. So I had an operation, a, a wonderful doctor called um, Mr. Bedolf. Did, he was a hand specialist in South Africa, and the, the South African cricket authorities um, paid for it with their insurance. I mean, my gosh, I'm so grateful because, again, yeah. like I said, I wasn't paid. I was an amateur. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to afford an operation that expensive. Um, but they, you know, they covered it, and I ended up having a decent cricket career because if I hadn't had that operation, I think I would never have come back. Um, in any case, um, the operation was successful, but it took four or so months um, to heal and then back and forth, x-rays, etc., to get the all clear. And then I can't remember if I played some games in 97. I might have, but it was a quiet year. And then, of course, what put me on the world map all happened in 98. At the end of 98, um, I can't remember when, feels something like August, September, when India came on a, on a trip yeah. to Zimbabwe. Two tests, right? Yeah, yeah that, I think it was a one-off test, actually. I a one-off it was test, a one-off one-off test. test. We yeah. played it in Harare, and um, something that had tended to happen throughout my career happened. And what happened was um, a man called Andy Pycroft came to me, and he was one of the conveners of selection. And he said to me, if you don't go out there and take five wickets, we're not going to look at you again. You know, we've given you a number of years, you've worked at your game, but yeah, there's other kids coming through. We might look at others. So they put that pressure on me and they kept doing that throughout my career. I think they thought that was my great motivator, which I think was unfortunate. I think they would have, they would have been able to eke a little bit more out of me if they were a bit more encouraging and more believing in me rather than threatening me. But the threat worked. Um, I went out and I took five wickets against India in the first innings, I think. Yeah. Um, first innings. So yeah, so I'm trying to remember who batted first. I think we batted first and made two something, 250 or something like that. It feels like 230, 240, 250. Um, and, then, and then we kept India within touching distance. Um, I think India got a lead of some kind. I can't remember. But it might have been 30 or 40 or 50 runs. 
I um, just opened the scorecard, then, Henry, to make it easier. I'll read it out. Uh, you, Zimbabwe, 221. India, 280. Uh, Henry yeah. Alanga gets five for 17, 26 overs. Zimbabwe make 293. And then uh-huh. with the... Uh, and then with India chasing 235, they get bowled out for 173. That's right. So, so that was obviously a momentous occasion for the country because not only was it our second test victory, we'd beaten Pakistan previously, but it was of one of the most iconic uh, cricket teams in the world. You know, they had an amazing selection. They had Azruddin, uh, Tendulkar, there was Navjot Sidhu, um, you know, Robin Singh. It was an iconic team. Uh, Ganguly. Um, Dravid, Azruddin. Dra- of course, Dra- can't, fa- can't forget Dravid, the wall. Um, and, and it was, a, it was, I think he made a hundred in the, one of the innings, the first innings or second innings, I can't remember. Um, but it was an amazing match because then I was named, um, I think I was player of the match. I, if I got, if I'm not mistaken, or at least I was certainly, um, Given accolades, you were you were player you were player of the match, um, and and so of course that then put me in in the public sort of conversation about the future, and I proved um, that I could I could bowl at that level, you know, because I, I think most people who follow cricket will tell you this that until you get that first five wicket haul, or you get that first fifty or that first hundred you're never really sure whether you belong in the game. And when you do that, you go, okay. And if you do it against good players as well, it's, it's, it's equally reassuring. So I hadn't had that. All I had was controversy. You know, it was a kid who couldn't bowl properly. They sent me off to three different places and I still wasn't making my mark on the world. And so when I, when I played those matches or that match, um, obviously people thought, okay, he's got something, you know, he, he's, he's a match winner. He can win matches for us, so we'll have a look at him. Um, and that's so that also was, probably that the time good. when you were bowling the quickest, right? That perhaps. Yes, definitely. Um, so yeah, so ninety-seven going into ninety-eight. Yeah, I I I, I started training properly, and um, I think it was ninety-eight that in in the early part of that year that I I I did this bodybuilding program. Um, called the Cybergenics Bodybuilding Program. It was the rage back in the day. It was a bit of a scam on the one hand, but, but it was, <laughs> you know. But it, but it was, got him, yeah. <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it worked. I mean, if you, the thing is, what I think what was scammy was some of the, the claims they made, you know. they were, Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and they gave you these droplets, which did nothing. But it was mainly the, the program, the actual bodybuilding program. If you, if you adhered to it, you packed on a lot of muscle and you got strong because they made you lift heavy. And they made you lift um, to a point of failure, which not a lot of programs do. So it basically forced you to push your limits, which obviously is also fantastic mentally because, you know, if you're pushing yourself beyond your known limits, it, it, it does something to your brain. And the other thing that I also did was I bought a course called The Dynamics of Personal Goal Setting. Um, a man called Paul J. Meyer had put this course together. He was primarily a businessman and, and, and the course is mostly directed at people in business leadership, but it works for anything and anyone. And so that was one of the main things that got me thinking positively, believing in myself, believing I could set goals, have a vision and fulfill it. And so um, those two things came together and obviously the combination of that was that match. But the 
things didn't end there for me. Actually, things got somewhat better because if I'm not mistaken, soon after that, we went to Sharjah. Yeah. And of course, videos still exist from way back when in 98. Um, <laughs> when... When I think if you type in, if you start typing my name in in Google, <laughs> you'll I you know, have, like in, on YouTube it'll be like Henry Alonga versus Sachin Tendulkar. I have I have <laughs> seen that video myself about twenty times, Henry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so something like that. So um, anyway, um, I, I obviously. But I still haven't figured out why. I still haven't figured out why he got so pissed off. <laughs> I, well, look, I know, mate, I, I, and it's not as it's not even as if. Um, it's not even as if um, I said anything to him or I was just happy to get him out. Um, because remember, I was the guy who was called to throwing, right? Yeah. Neil Johnson got him out twice in the test match. So yeah. if anything, he was Neil Johnson's bunny for a couple of matches. Anyway, but on that occasion, what a lot of people don't understand is, and I explain this in the book and I tell the story often, so I know the story. But what a lot of people don't understand is, is that our team had had a meeting this is prior to this match that was a dead rubber. So this is prior to the final. Yeah. And if you look at the video on, on YouTube, you will notice that I don't even have my name printed on the back of my shirt. I wasn't even supposed to go on that tour. It was soon <laughs> after the, the test match. And because I did well in the test match, I thought, oh, well, let's send Henry to Sharjah. Maybe let's see what he can do, right? So I was like a last-minute addition to the tour. And I didn't play any of the games up until that point. So I think we played Sri Lanka in one or two and then India in one or two. And Sri Lanka were going home. So they, you know, we had this other match with India, which didn't matter, didn't mean anything. Um, so they picked me. And of course, so one of the things that, I, so this is my point. One of the things that we discussed for some reason was that there were bowlers taking wickets off no balls. And the management team were not happy. They were, they were just thinking it's so ill-disciplined. You know, you should never take wickets off no ball, stay behind the line, blah, blah, blah. Now, $1,000 fine. $1,000 fine. But for the record, all those coaches, et cetera, all batsmen, right? All batsmen. <laughs> there, was, there was never a fine for a stupid run out or yeah. a, a soft dismissal. It was just bowlers. No, no, no. You're stepping over the mark. That's unprofessional. You know? <laughs> so, so, so I got Tendulkar out, right? So I ran up and uh, actually what happened was I got Ganguly out yeah. very early on in my spell. I, I, it might've even, even been my first ball. Um, I look at it on YouTube and it looks like the ball pitched outside leg stump. So I think it was not out, but Steve Dunn gave him out. Um, and then I, th that wasn't my first over that I bowled. Then in the second over I bowled, I got Dravid. So I bowled the back of a length ball um, and it, it caught the outside edge. Neil Johnson caught him at slip. Um, so India were now two down after two or four, four or so overs. And then the little master came in. In fact, now I think he would have opened, so he might have been in already, but I hadn't bowled to him yet. Um, and then I, I bowled the perfect delivery to the little master. Because, you know, Sachin, as good as he was, if you were going to get him at any point, it was early on in his innings. I think you can say that about most batsmen. But once he gets his eye in, like, forget it. You know what I mean? It's like, he was that kind of player that once he was in, he's going to get 50 or 100. So 
your best chance was early on. And so I, I actually bowled, we talked about this in our team meeting, and I actually bowled the perfect delivery. It was on a length, it swung away a little bit, and or seemed, I can't remember, but it did enough that he, he played a false stroke, he kind of played a, I don't know if it was a full-blooded drive or whether it was just a, a, a defensive block, but it caught the outside edge. And um, just before it reached Andy Flower, Steve Dunn yelled out, no ball. So now you can imagine, <laughs> my, my, you can imagine my teammates weren't happy. There were hats thrown on the ground. Um, maybe some stronger words than I would use on a program like this. And, <laughs> and, and, then, and then it just occurred to me, that I actually was going to get fined a thousand dollars and I was playing for free. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'm not an amateur anymore. I get paid for what I do. <laughs> and, and you know what? It's like, I don't even know if that was legal. Like, can you, can you actually tell someone, because you, you know what I mean? Like, can you tell the waiter that because he dropped the spoon, you're going to find him some money or because he dropped the plate of food. You know, I mean, it's like people make mistakes, man. You can't find them. They're match fee. So anyway, forget about that. Um, I walked back to the top of my mark and I thought, oh, you know, I don't know what to do now. I, I, I've bowled to the best batsman in the world, arguably. And I got him out and now I'm playing for free and I'm going to get a lecture from my coach at the end of the match. So, so I ran in hard and I bowled uh, a really quick bouncer, which I, I'm pretty sure he wasn't expecting um, because the way he played it shows that it must have surprised him a little bit. And so it caught the shoulder of the bat. It must have bounced a little bit extra as well. Caught the shoulder of the bat and uh, he was caught by uh, Grant Flowers. Grant Flowers. That silly, silly point or something like that, yeah. And, um, and so I was just so happy that I got Tendulkar out after not getting him out, and I was happy that I was getting paid. Uh, but as you said, <laughs> as you say, I'm not sure what made him so mad. I didn't, I didn't give him a send-off. I didn't, you know, like, exchange any words with him. I was just ecstatic. Um, but maybe it was the manner in which he was dismissed. You know, I mean, he was a fantastic player, and maybe he thought, oh, that I, I, maybe he felt embarrassed. I, I don't know, but it, he took it personally. And I, I write in my book that I heard, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that he just kept practicing the poor shot in the mirror for a long time at night. And he, he, he kept listening to Guns N' Roses or something like that. Um, and the next match, uh, the final match, I, I think the dead rubber might have been Friday and the final might have been Sunday. I mean, I could be mistaken, but it, it felt like there was a couple, a day or two between. Um, and he just went ballistic. We, we didn't score enough runs, incidentally. So in our first innings, we scored a paltry total. It couldn't have been more than 180 or 90 or something like that. So, which back in the day was, you know, even back then was a low score. You'd be happy with 250 plus in 50 overs. I know T20s made the, the game of cricket, uh, the shorter version of the game, extraordinary. Now people score 350 without batting an eyelid. But then, even then, back in the day, 190 was hard to defend. And he just went absolutely crazy. He, he, he was flawless. He didn't give any chances. He threw the bat very hard. I don't think I induced 
any kind of false stroke. I maybe got him to play and miss once or twice, but after that, he just, uh, it was business time for him and he, he was man of the match, 100, scored 100 off 60, 50, 60 balls, something like that. And it was phenomenal. I, of course, wasn't the only one who came in for a bit of stick. I mean, everyone who bowled got <laughs> um, uh, but But in particular, because there was this perception that I'd, I'd injured his ego or something like that, um, you know, he got his revenge. And, of course, it's all over YouTube. So, um, <laughs> but it was, but, but it was, it, it was the birth of me because I was strong and I was bowling really fast. And so I took that form with me into the Pakistan tour at the end of 98. And um, we won our first test series in Pakistan on the back of uh, us bowling as a team, of course, but, but on the back of one spell that I bowled um, in, in, in Pakistan's second innings. Let me just tell the story briefly. So we went to Pakistan after Australia had been there. And I'm not sure where this match was. I think it was Peshawar. Um, I think it was Mark Taylor Scott declared at 3.34. That, that's right. That's exactly the one. So we came soon after that. Yeah. So soon, in fact, that um, the wicket that he scored those runs on was still playable. You could still play on <laughs> And, and um, there was a man who was pretty high up in Pakistan cricket who the, the day before the test match came up to the wicket, had a look at it, and he said, we're not going to play on that wicket. We're going to play on this one. And what he meant was the wicket adjacent yeah. to the Mark Taylor wicket. And the wicket that he wanted was underprepared. They hadn't been, you know, they'd rolled it a little bit and watered it a bit, but it was still full of grass. It had like an inch of grass on it. So he was basically saying he wanted a green top and he wanted a result. And he assumed the result would go Pakistan's way because, of course, they had Wazim Akram. They had um, Waka Yunus. I think they had Akib Javid as well. Um, and that was an incredible pace attack that on their day, even on a flat wicket, would be very, there'd be a handful. And so cutting a long story short, I think um, they batted first, uh, again, scores were in the 200s, you know, 250. I, I got it. Two, 296 Pakistan's Two, first innings. Yeah. 238 Zimbabwe's first innings. Neil Johnson yep. getting 100. And That's 103 right. Pakistan bowled out for 103 in the second innings with Henry Olonga getting 4 for 42 right. in 11 overs. So that, that right there was what won us the match. Yeah. So um, that performance pulled the heart out of their attack. So, uh, you know, I, I can't remember who I got, but I, I remember getting in Zimamul Haq with a ball that stayed low. Yeah. And so uh, the wicket was, was becoming unpredictable. It was bouncing off a length. It was staying low off a length. Uh, it was dangerous. It really was an underprepared wicket. And it was taking chunks of grass out with it as well. People getting hit on the... On the, on the, on the, on the, on the gloves and, you know, fingers almost getting broken, that kind of danger. But, um, they wanted to keep playing because they thought they had a chance. They only were chasing 160 odd. Um, sorry, we were chasing 160 odd and they were getting wickets regularly. So they thought they had a, a chance, but Murray Goodwin knuckled down and I think he scored a half century 
and yeah. uh, we ended up winning that match. And and then what happened next was the the next test match uh, uh, was a draw as a result of uh, a lot of time being lost due to fog. So we yeah. were starting quite late in the day. And in the last match, I don't even think we bowled a ball. I can't remember. I think it was just... Fogged out. Yeah. It was fogged out. It was abandoned. And so as a result of that, we won the Test Series. We didn't really deserve to, if you, if, if you, if you look at it that way, because we, we won one Test match out of three. Um, but, it, you know, it's enough. And if, if people look at the record books, they'll see that Zimbabwe won its first away series uh, in, in Pakistan. And uh, and that's all they care about. And I was named. And you were the man, man of the, of the series. series for <laughs> yeah. Zimbabwe, but yeah. Yusuf Yuhana, who ended up being called Muhammad Yusuf, Yusuf, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. um, um, he was the Pakistan man of the series because he kept scoring yeah. runs at a at a good rate in spite of everything, uh, the wicket, etc. So, so I I was that was the making of me, uh, and that was almost my peak. I think I bowled quicker in Pakistan than I ever bowled at any other stage in my, in my career. Uh, then injuries and form became an issue. Uh, and then soon after that was the World Cup, and we did exceptionally well. And again, I uh, had uh, a good match against India, uh, which many Indians uh, keep reminding me about. Um, we, we remember that well. But I, I mean, when I was reading the book, I really enjoyed that uh, phase, that, that, that passage that you had about saying that you had worked on your Yorker really well towards the death mm. and which perhaps the Indians were not expecting. Well, I don't know. I don't know uh, what they knew about me. I was, remember, I was still quite fresh. I was still, um, I mean, although I'd been a, on the scene, cricket scene for almost uh, four years by then, I hadn't played a lot of cricket, so it's not like they had a lot of intel on me and, and they, they knew what I could do. But um, our coach, Dave Houghton, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Dave Houghton, yes. Um, he'd, he'd spoken to us about reverse swing and bowling at the death, and we'd obviously encountered a few bowlers by this stage, like Darren Goff, of course, Wazim, Waka, uh, Akib Javid. All these guys were good exponents of reverse swing. And so over the years, we'd, we'd practiced, we'd tried, but England in particular was an interesting uh, series, uh, at least the World Cup was, because um, we were using these balls called reader balls. And the reader balls um, have a prominent seam, and they're slightly different to the Duke balls or the kookaburras, in that, uh, and because England was, obviously they have lush outfields and... Um, uh, it, it was there was a lot of rain around as well. Um, it was very hard to get the ball scuffed up, but if you got it just enough, because 50 overs is long enough for one side to get a little scuffed up. If you just do enough work on it, it it can reverse swing. So we'd practiced this enough, and I was bowling initially to um, Robin Singh. I think Robin Singh was the one who let the team down. Uh, and just to give a little bit of background to people who didn't watch the match. Um, India were chasing uh, a modest total of, again, 240 or something like that, you know, 230, because uh, those were decent scores back in the day. You have the scorecard there, I'm sure, but it wasn't a massive score. Sachin Tendulkar had returned to India because sadly his father had died and he went to pay his respect. So that was an important thing to mention because, of course, they were somewhat weaker. Um, and 
in my first They were chasing, spell, just to clarify, they were chasing 253, but Zimbabwe had batted yes. 50 overs and India were only going to get 46. Correct, because of slow over rate, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Yes. So thanks for clarifying that. I, my, the, the figures in my head are always around the 230, 240 mark. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so what happened was um, it was neck and neck for quite a while. And India got to about 240 with maybe six or so runs uh, overs to go. And um, 246, yeah, three, with six overs to wickets, go. Yeah. Three wickets in hand, something right. like that. There was, Correct. Uh, and uh, Campbell came to me when there were maybe two overs left. And uh, he said to me, uh, listen, this is, you know, this is your chance to shine. And one of my other teammates said, you can make history here. And all I had to do was believe um, that I could do enough. So I came around the wicket to Robin Singh. So Robin Singh was still there, of course. Kumble was still in. So set three wickets and I'm thinking, oh, man, I have to come up with a miracle here. But, um, of course, I was thinking, the last time I played India, they made me look stupid, you know? <laughs> so I thought... <laughs> I thought maybe this is my moment to get something back on them. Um, and then, of course, like I said, Robin Singh is the one who started the rot because I don't think he should have gotten out. It wasn't the greatest delivery. I came around the wicket to him. It was reverse swinging a little bit. And he could have just taken a single. But he kind of got caught between hitting it over the top and driving it on the ground. And he, 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 he lobbed it in the air to Alistair Campbell, who was at short cover. And he took a good catch. It was a decent catch just in front of him. He had to dive a little bit, which was, that was a miracle in itself. Uh, and Alistair Campbell never dived, even if he was about to be run out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so it was quite amazing uh, that he took that catch. And then, of course, I'm now back to over the wicket. And I, this was where all that muscle memory came in. You know, we talk about muscle memory in sport, how if you do something 10,000 times, eventually you don't even have to think about it. Well, on this occasion, it all just... Came together, Javigal Srinath. Um, I bowled the perfect Yorker, uh, which beat him, uh, beat his defenses quite well. He'd actually come in and hit a couple of decent shots. I think he hit Guy Whittle for a four, maybe even a six. So he was looking like he was getting his eye in. And with two overs to go and them needing crumbs, I don't know, eight runs or something. I, I obviously had to, to come up with it. And so when I got him out, uh, all of a sudden now we had Venkatesh Prasad walking out very slowly. And I'd been with Venkatesh Prasad at the MRF Pace Foundation. And I remember bowling to him then. And I don't remember him being a, a dashing Mark War or Greg Blewett <laughs> or, or Ricky Ponting. No disrespect no. to Mr. Prasad. <laughs> no, I don't think uh, even, I think even Mr. Prasad will have a quiet chuckle that you mentioned names like Mark Waugh right here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, listen, and Vegas Prasad was a lovely guy as well. You know, I, I've come across very few horrible people in cricket, but I, ha I have done, but he wasn't one of them. He was a lovely man. But I thought, I think I can get him. He's tall. Remember, he's very tall. And if there's anything we know about tall people is they struggle to, to, to come down on the ball very quickly. So I aimed, I tried to do an action replay of the previous ball, but uh, I didn't quite get the length right. But the line was good. And so it hit him halfway up the pad, or maybe on the knee roll. 
And because they only needed something like four runs or something like that, I, I, my first instinct was to get the ball to prevent them running a quick single because I knew that they wanted to swap. Um, but then as I ran towards the ball, I, and just before I picked it up, I actually stopped and thought that looked pretty adjacent. So I turned around and appealed and Steve Dunn gave him out. And of course it was uh, pandemonium, at least <laughs> from the Zimbabwean, at least from the Zimbabwean fans, I, the Indian fans were stunned into silence. They, they had been, uh, and I write about this humorously in my book, they'd been abusing me all day long. They were saying, bring back Olonga and the game will go on no longer, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it was, it was one of those moments that was very satisfying because I think I got three wickets and four balls. I wasn't named man of the match. I think Grant Flower was yes. for taking a number of wickets and scoring a, uh, maybe a half century. I can't remember. Um, 45. Almost, yeah. Um, but, but it was equally satisfying. I felt like the man of the match, even if I wasn't named. Because, of course, um, that's what I was in the team for, was to win matches. And I, I was a match winner on that occasion. Interestingly, um, you bowled anyway, just four overs in that, in that match. Yeah, my first three overs, I know, my first three overs went for, I don't know, 20, 23 or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) So they took me off. Um, But we had, we had, we had a decent pace attack. So the reason they could do that was because we had, in that match, we actually, if I'm not mistaken, we added Edo Brandes. Yeah, he was there. We had Heathstreet, Edo Brandes, myself. Neil Johnson, Neil Johnson. and yeah. Guy Whittle. Yeah. And, and so you had a couple of all-rounders. They could, you know, they could give three or four overs here. One of the things we wanted to do was to keep changing the, the, uh, the bowling attack just so that no, they didn't get settled against any one of us. So that, that explains why I bowled only a few overs. But I also, my first spell wasn't that great, so that's why they took me off. Um, but we then went on um, to qualify for the super six stages after beating South Africa in an amazing match. I won't go into too much detail, um, but, but, and then we, we, we got eliminated after losing to Pakistan um, at Lords. Um, and that eventually ended our campaign. And then we started, um, rebuilding from then on we 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 had some just just to stop you there but i didn't realize until you i read this book that uh zimbabwe were actually uh like the south africa of world cups for a point because there were moments where you just needed a few more runs and you would have qualified uh ahead of new zealand uh but by the math went wrong and then you Mm -hmm. didn't qualify and that happened twice Well, uh, well, I, it's worse than that. It, it's it's worse than that because <laughs> not only did we get the math wrong, but we were threatened. So oh my God. let me put it. So so we were. So I was batting with Heath Street um, at at Law, um, not at Lords. Did I say Lords earlier? What I meant was the Oval uh, we against played, Pakistan, we played, right? We played Pakistan yeah. at the Oval. Yes, it wasn't Lords. It was the Oval. So we were playing at the Oval. We were always going to lose that match. Um, I think we were chasing some high score, whatever, 280 or something. It was out of our reach. And we'd lost a lot of wickets and we weren't doing great. So I was, I was in batting with Heath Street. Now, you know that if I'm in, that we're almost all out, right? <laughs> if I go in, 
the bat. It, it's almost curtains for Zimbabwe. But we still had 10 or so overs left. And Heath Streak and I were talking as we were going. And our primary objective was survival. We thought, let, let's, just, let's just survive for another two, three overs or take it an over at a time. And perhaps we can have a go at the end. Because Heath was pretty good at that. Now, it was going to be difficult because we're talking Waka, uh, Shoebakta, uh, and Wazim. <laughs> so, and Saklen. And Saklen, yes. Now I'm going to get to Saklen. So, <laughs> so, um, so we, had, we had someone bring drinks with gloves. You know when they bring drinks. And, and you know you yeah. didn't ask for the drink, but they've obviously got an instruction from the coach. So the coach uh, said, um, you guys need to start hitting out. And we were thinking, well, we've still got 10 overs, man. We can hit out and get out and we'll be all out for nothing, right? Let's just try and hang around. And Streaky and I were like, no, nah, just ignore that. Let's just, let's just try and hang around, survive, and see what happens. Not long after that, the instruction came again. But this time, it came with a threat. And, and the, the message was, if you guys don't start hitting out now, you will not be picked for the next match against... New Zealand or whatever, you know, in the Super Sixes. The, the assumption was that we'd already made the Super Sixes, and so they were going to leave us out if we didn't start getting aggressive. So what, what's a guy to do, right? I mean, your coach has threatened you that they're not going to pick you again. So I, I had a swing at Sakling, because if you're going to swing at anyone in that Pakistan team, he's probably the best one to try it against, right? <laughs> so I swung, I swung at, and I missed the ball. I was out of my crease. I got stumped. The next batsman was Adam Huckle, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Adam, Adam, Huckle. Huckle, Adam Huckle came in, and he was out first ball. And then Pommy Mbangwa came in next, and he was out first ball. So the match was over. Saklain got a hat trick, and we still had nine or ten overs. overs left. 9.5 overs. overs. <laughs> yeah, 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 this is what I'm saying. We had nine or call it ten overs, right? <laughs> we had ten overs to go, and um, I, I, I wrote in my book that Heath Street walked into the change room. He was absolutely livid because, of course, he saw this all happen on the other side. Yeah, he threw his bat down, and it didn't occur to us straight away what we'd done until the commentators started doing the debrief, as they do after the match. And one of them said, and I think this was blaring, this is either in the change room at the ground or it might have been later when we were in our hotel rooms. Uh, and we heard um, the commentator say, well, what a pity, you know, Zimbabwe, if they'd only scored another 30 or so runs, uh, they, would have had a superior, <laughs> they would have had a superior net run rate to New Zealand and they would have qualified uh, in place of New Zealand. And so New Zealand, actually, in the Super 6 stage, we had a, a draw with New Zealand because there was a rain-affected match. So that's why we ended up pretty close on points. And we shared points for that match. And I think, you know, we, we uh, I can't remember what else happened. But long story short, they qualified instead of us because of 30 runs. And, you know, you think about it on reflection, you think 10 more overs, you know, his streak was a decent all-rounder. I'm sure we would have scored another 30 runs because the other batsman would have just held up an end just try to survive and Streaky would have, you know, hit out and made some, scored some boundaries perhaps. And maybe we would have got there. And I'm very honest about this in the book that I can't say, I know we would have got those 30 runs 
But it's it's a question of what if. A bit like South Africa in the 2003 World Cup, when they got yeah. the math wrong, you're, you're always saying, you're always left saying, what if, you know, if only we had uh, ifs, buts, and maybes. And yeah. it's in that camp. But, but it was to happen again in South Africa um, in, a tri, in a tri-nation series or tri-series, however you put it, when we played England and South Africa. And something similar happened in, at Port Elizabeth uh, at St. George's Park when I was, about, I, was, I was the last man out. I was the last man to go out and bat. And I asked my coach, uh, listen, I'd been there before, right? So I said, is there any, uh, is there anything Chance. to think about? Should, should we bat? Should we, should I hang around? He's like, nah, don't worry. Just have a go. Right. So of course <laughs> I go out, I have a go, I get out and you won't believe it. Um, and I write about it in, I, I, I talk about it in my audio book. I asked the question, can lightning strike the same place twice? <laughs> what and it, it did, did on that occasion. <laughs> It yeah. did, because the commentators, same as before, came up and said, oh, poor old Zimbabwe, if only they'd scored another X number of runs, they would have been through to the final. And, you know, again, I, I write about how unfair I think the whole system in Zimbabwe was because the coach didn't get sanctioned for that. You know, I was always sanctioned for bad bowling here or bad bowling there. But he literally cost us a potential place in a semifinal in the World Cup. And nothing happened. We just and God know. knows how many how many chances Zimbabwe are going to get for that. <laughs> I know. From, I know. Yeah. And anyway, I, 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 I'm not angry or mad at the coach. I just one of the things that I think will come through a bit stronger in my audiobook because, and I need to say this: the audiobook is actually going to be called "Blood, Sweat, and Treason: My Story Expanded." Okay. Because what I've done is I've taken a lot of those stories and I fleshed them out a little bit more. So if, okay. you, if you read the book and you compare it to the audiobook, the audiobook is probably twice as long because I've then taken some of those stories and given a little bit more of the human aspect to the story perhaps or a little bit more detail or I've thrown in a few jokes or something like that. So the book, the audiobook's longer. Um, but but I'm, very, I'm very honest about how I, I, I think there was a double standard in Zimbabwe cricket where they would be very harsh on some people and go easy on others. Um, it w- and it wasn't always results-based. So there was obviously something else at play sometimes. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that uh, you've mentioned that in several aspects of the book and it comes across, uh, you know, with all honesty, it doesn't come across as vindictive, but it just comes across as an honest opinion that you're putting through. Uh, which brings me to, you know, the moment that you talk about in the West Indies, when mm. Dave Horton's uh, tenure as coach finished, because the players felt that you know this was just untenable from this point of time, mm. and also in parallel was the economic and political situation in Zimbabwe, which was then really reaching like a stage that you know you uh, that was very apparent that things were going horribly wrong. So, mm. you know, th- those two things seem to have come together to sort of at, like at the really wrong time, right? Yeah, that's right. So, so I, I, must, I must just give a little bit more foundation on the West Indies. We'd, we'd almost won. We almost won the first test against the West Indies in Port of Spain. So Brian Lara had taken an indefinite break 
from cricket because I think he'd gone to New Zealand and as captain and I don't think they got the results they wanted and everyone is jumping down his throat. So he said, you know what? I'm just going to take a break. So Jimmy Adams was the stand-in captain and we played, a, we played that test match around about the time a thing called Carnival happens. And Carnival is, uh, I think many people might be familiar with Carnival in, in, in Brazil. Anyway, it was, it was a rainy affair. The, uh, there was a lot of um, moisture around. So we actually decided to field first in that test match. And we fielded first and restricted West Indies to a low score. It was in the hundreds. It, they, I don't think they got like 200 or something. I think we did in our first innings. And we had a healthy lead. And then um, we bowled them out for another pretty low score. And we needed 99 to win. And without making the story very long and boring, we ended up failing to get the 99. And I think we bowled out in, our, in the 60s. 63. 63 or something. Something like that, yeah. So 60, 63. It was very, very heartbreaking for Zimbabwe because uh, not many teams went to the West Indies and won. Not yeah. many teams went to the West Indies and won when they had Courtney Walsh and Kurtley Ambrose bowling. And there was another young man called uh, Franklin Rose. Who Franklin Rose, who we are very familiar with, Henry. Our podcast called 81 All Out is named after India being 81 All Out in a test against West Indies in 1997, ah. where Franklin Rose, the same is that man. Right? Yes, ah. <laughs> Was that 81? <laughs> I see. So was that 81? Was that in the West Indies? It must have been the West in Indies. In Barbados, where India were chasing in... 120 and got out 81. Oh, <laughs> I see. So they used to do this regularly, you see. We yes. didn't know that. <laughs> and they also bought England out for some yes. ridiculous... 47 or something. 40 something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so... So we thought, but we, we woke up in the morning thinking, oh, we're going to get this 99 runs. Who, who, it's, that's a walk in the park. We've got all day, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, fifth day wicket, the cracks had widened. It was staying up, staying down, blah, blah. It was the worst. And it was a procession, in, out, in, out. And, and long story short, we, you've got to throw that into the equation with regards to the politics of Zimbabwe. Uh, the, the first farmer that I heard of um, getting killed happened around about that time as well. He was a man called Martin Olds and he went, he was an old boy of my school and the first white farmer getting murdered. And then um, uh, the, the history with Dave Houghton and the, the, the near misses, you put that all together and uh, some of the senior players were saying, um, you know what? I think we need a change. And Dave, Dave had been in charge after um, John Hampshire had left us. And I think John Hampshire coached us when I made my debut in 95, but I think he was gone by 96. So I think 96, Dave Houghton was in charge already. And so we're looking at four or five years. And I don't know what the shelf life of a coach at the highest level is, but I think if you look around, people get sick of you after around about that time. You know what I mean? Like it happened to Andy Flower. He had success with England and then round about the five, six year mark. They, yeah, Justin Langer. And it almost doesn't matter how successful you are. You know, you can, you might have won multiple World Cups and, uh, and trophies, but there's just a, a certain 
irritation that starts to creep in. Maybe the saying familiarity breeds contempt uh, uh, is informative. I don't know. But I just think over time, people just say, you know what? We, I think we need some fresh faces here. And yeah. it, it obviously happens to players. After a while, you know, people think, oh, you haven't performed in a while. See you later. Um, but one of the things I didn't mention in my original paperback or hardback copy of the book, well, and I might touch on it here um, in, in this book, and I have to be sensitive about this, but the coach actually manhandled me at a practice. And I don't know what we were doing. We were doing a warm-up exercise. I think we were fielding. And, and I don't know what I did that was offensive. It's possible I did something. I don't know. But I was just being myself, lots of energy. I was a bit jocular or something. And he, he, was, he was obviously um, stressed and uh, somewhat tense. He started yelling at us and he grabbed me by the shirt and he pulled me, he almost pulled me off my feet. And of course, when something like that happens, it kind of... Uh, uh, it sends a, a bit of a wave of negativity through the team. And, and that was another thing that I think was informative in the decision that was to come uh, towards the end of the tour. I don't know who kicked it off, but there was a meeting that was convened and um, Andrew Flower was our captain at the time. And he said that he'd been approached by a few senior players who said, that they felt uh, uh, the tenure with Dave Houghton had run its course. It was untenable. And so there was a show of hands. Who, who, you know, who, who here is for, who's against? I can't remember if there were any people who said they wanted Dave Houghton to continue, but I can tell you that there were a lot of hands that were showed to say that they wanted to vote no confidence in him. Um, Andy Flower was very clear that he thought it was a very serious thing. My impression, I can't remember the conversation we're talking 20-something years ago, but my impression was that he thought we needed to be absolutely clear that it was what we wanted to do. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't a fan of the decision, but he was going to go with what the team decided. Now, of course, you talk to me, you hear one thing. You might talk to the rest of the team and they might say something else. But I think I've got a pretty good grasp on that is the fact that the majority of people said, no, nah, we can't carry on. And there were a lot of things discussed. Of course, there were the, the near misses. There was the manhandling of me. And, and a lot of people also felt that he'd become a little um, distant. So Dave, a lovely man. I played with him. He, I, he coached me. Um, I'm not against him in any way. But one of the things he didn't, that he did, was when, when play began, he'd do a crossword. And he seemed disinterested in what was happening. You know, he wasn't watching the computer screen or the, the, the monitor. He'd watch. Of course he'd watch. I mean, cricket's got a lot of downtime, right? But, but it just wasn't a good look. And so people, yeah. people were feeling that that, that was also, he, he seemed disinterested or jaded or something. And when you've had close near misses with someone, and so remember there's the, there's the, the, the World Cup, there was the South Africa Tri-Series, and there was now that first test. Uh, we all felt we got to get rid of him. So we voted and, and uh, the manager was informed and he went and he told Dave Houghton. And I can't remember if Dave uh, announced it straight away or um, did it when we went 
back home, but he obviously uh, uh, signed signed his resignation, and, and uh, uh, he was no no longer the coach of Zimbabwe until fairly recently. I think he's been brought back into it. Um, uh, it look, I think it must have been a very very traumatic experience for him. I can't imagine it was a pleasant time for him. Um, but you know that's cricket. I had those moments. I. I had many moments when I was sent home from a tour because they thought I wasn't performing or I was given a lecture. And you know what? You take it on the chin, man. You know, you're a professional sportsman. You've got to be able to handle it. And, you know, in all honesty, as much as I like Dave as a person, I just think that some of the, uh, the grievances brought against him were valid. And so we ended up going... Th- but, but you'd think the troubles would stop there. The troubles didn't stop there. We then went to England... And then the players decided to strike for more money. Um, exactly, and that and that's when the player power kind of became yeah. really prominent. But but the, on the tour of England, though, I have to uh, ask you to you know I have to mention that particular incident that you mention in the book, which seems to have yeah. been pivotal in terms of your relationship with the players, especially causing quite a bit of a sort of a racial cleave in the team mm. because of that incident with uh, Mululeki and Kala that happened, uh, you know, when some a, a yeah. white player basically at the heat of a moment had a statement about him, which uh, you disagreed with strongly and sort of yeah. seems to have blown up. Yeah, so I think by this point, um, I, I reckon I might have been on the verge of injury or I was injured. I can't remember. I started mm. to get some, some pain in my lower leg. Oh, yes, yes, the, yes. When you had a scan and nothing was revealed. Yeah, correct, and correct. it didn't show anything. Yeah. So the scan yeah. didn't show anything. And far from getting any sympathy from my teammates, um, they were like, well, what's wrong with you? The scans have shown nothing, right? Correct, correct. So, <clears throat> so we didn't get off on a good footing, obviously. So I was obviously hurt that they they disbelieved that I was actually injured because every time I landed on my leg, um, this sharp pain would go through my leg. I'd never experienced it before. It was I was seeing the physio. We were trying to treat it, and nothing was happening. It was getting worse every time I bowled. So I'll jump ahead and tell you that what it was was a stress fracture yeah. in my in my in my fibula, but we didn't know that at the time. It actually only came out when it happened a second time after the tour of New Zealand, uh, maybe a year or two later. And, and the only reason we discovered it is because when I came back from that tour and told my dad my leg still hurts, he sent me for an x-ray because my dad was a doctor. And then they found this, this, this huge bump. Well, I say huge, but it was a, a bump on my fibula where the bone had repaired itself. And that's how you know that you have a stress fracture. Unless you do some very specific scans, when, when you first start to injure a stress fracture, it doesn't show on an x-ray. So anyway, so that's, that's the foundation. I'm obviously injured. I'm, I, I'm sitting in the change room. I'm not happy with life. Um, and the farm invasions are happening in Zimbabwe. So obviously, one of the worst things you can bring up is, is politics <laughs> at, at a time like that. Like, like there are some things you don't talk about. People say if you're in polite company, you don't talk about religion and you don't talk about politics, Right. But of course, we're in a change room and, you know, we're playing against Yorkshire. Pobbing Bang was taking 10 wickets in the, in the two innings. He's, but there's a lot of rain, a lot of rain. So there's lots of downtime. 
So Neil Johnson, um, Neil Johnson was a was a, a fierce competitor on the field. He was a lovely guy, but he came from South Africa, and I think that's significant because I think in South Africa, um, there's a little less sensitivity talking about race because of the checkered history of South Africa and apartheid, etc. And so he might have been, I think he might have been a bit more prudent to not say what he said. And he might not have thought it was offensive, um, but he said it anyway. And I think he expected it to be something that was just laughed about and joked and, and everyone moves on. Now, I can't remember exactly what he said, so I'm not quoting his exact words, but it went something like this. Nkala, you're the blackest thing I've ever seen. You're dark like charcoal. So other people will tell me he said something else, but either way, whatever he said to me was inappropriate. I, I thought it's, it's not the kind of thing that you should be saying to a teammate who's a different race to you. I, 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 he didn't say it, in my opinion, with a tone that everyone knew was a joke. Oh. It was, it was, it, so I said, I said, hold on. I, some of us find that a little offensive, you know, something like that, right? I said, I, I find that offensive. And so he, I can't remember whether he jumped back in or someone else did, but then someone else said, ah, oh, uh, you, you got a chip on your shoulder. <laughs> I said, I said, pardon? I beg your, what do you mean I got a chip on my shoulder? I, I think what he said is wrong. So, of course, it all hit off then. Because now, listen, I'm a fast bowler. I'm generally a, a very placid guy. But, of course, I've got an aggressive side to me. You have to be a very fast bowler. You can't, be a, you can't be a weakling. You've got to be able to stand up for yourself, right? So I said, uh, okay, right? Are you guys serious? You're doing this right now? So the interesting thing is, in that squad... If I'm not mistaken, there would have been four players of color and the rest were white. So there was myself, there was Pomi Mbangwa, there was Nkala, and there was Tatenda Taibu. He was a very young boy at the time. I think he may still have been at school. He might have been like 17 or 18. Like seven on the tour. <laughs> he must have been <laughs> so young. <laughs> he was so small. I know, but... But so they were just bringing him on the tour to get experience of what it was like for touring. They had already identified that he was a promising player of the future, et cetera, et cetera. Andy Flower was on the verge of retirement within a couple of years. So it was a plan for the future. So he wasn't going to say anything, was he? Uh, Pomi Mbangwa, he was chilled. He didn't think much of the comment. And Nkala wasn't going to say anything because he was a junior player. He would have been, I don't know, I'm guessing barely 20. So I thought, well, I'm the senior black player. I'm going to say something. I, I don't think this is appropriate or okay. So they all jumped down my throat. So I said to them, I said, you know, I don't agree with these farm invasions, but one good thing that's going to come out of them is going to knock you white guys off your high horse because you guys, you keep looking down at us. Yeah. Oh, they didn't like that. They did not like that. They gave me the... They gave me a look that said, oh, I wish you would just die right now. And I said to them, so I challenged some of them. So they all kept coming at me, like all of them, like the whole freaking change room came after me. 
Uh, I'm not saying every single person said something, but and many of them had farms too, Henry. Right? To be fair, yes, of they course, they had yeah. farms. So I yeah. said to them, so I no, but I said to them, I said, I bet you don't treat your farm workers equal. Mm. Yeah, I said, I bet you don't look at me as an equal. And here's the thing: is I was pointing out something that if they were, if they were up for a vociferous debate, they would have understood what I was saying which was, surely it's okay for me to call out Neil Johnson for that statement. Because if we are peers, if we're on the same level, if we're teammates, we should be able to have it out amongst ourselves. And even if it gets heated, we should still be cool with each other, right? I mean, that's life, right? It happens across the, the aisle um, when you talk about the political spectrum. There's, there's left, there's right. People yell at each other, they shout, but you can have a beer with each other afterwards. But of course... It was a very tense time in Zimbabwe, so emotions were heightened. Um, and long story short, there's one guy, Gary Brent, who came to me and, 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 and we sort of had a, a decent, like, he sort of saw my point of view. The rest of them were not interested. Um, one of the senior players went to the manager and said, Olonga's causing some racial stuff. I'm like, <laughs> Wait, dude, I didn't start this, man. <laughs> I was like, what? how did this end up on my shoulder? Yeah. Like a, a white dude says something inappropriate to a junior black player. That's okay to you guys, but I'm the one who started it. Mm. So long story short, not only do I pinpoint that as pivotal in my career, but it was pivotal in Zimbabwe cricket. Cause I then go on to talk about how there were eyeballs now watching this racial issue in Zimbabwe cricket. A couple or so years later, in fact, no. So what, when was that tour? What year was that tour? 2000. Was that 2000? Yeah. So, yeah. So a year or so later, things started to move. Um, uh, <clears throat> by 2002, things had well and truly moved. So what happened next was there was a group called the – oh, crumbs. What was it called? Oh, for to uh, to remove racial discrimination. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they gave themselves a name. It was the campaign for the eradication of racism in Zimbabwe cricket, something like that. Campaign to eradicate was, racism in Zimbabwean cricket. Yeah, yeah. It it was yeah. it was um, it was spearheaded by a man called Ozias Vute and another man called Maxud Ibrahim. Now I knew both of these men. Um, because I bumped into Ozias because he was Everton's friend or, rel or relative, something like that, Everton Matamanadzu. Yeah. Um, Max, I knew because I rubbed shoulders with him in club cricket. He was an Asian man. He was the son of Justice Ahmed Ibrahim. Mm. And he was a good man. He was, he was a chief justice. He was a, 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 law, a, a judge in Zimbabwe. And he was very instrumental in getting me to go to the academies over the years. He was a great believer in me. So I'm a big fan of the man. Um, but Max, his son, was a little bit more uh, aggressive uh, in that he wanted the integration of, of, of other races in the team. So he wanted um, a more Asian players. Uh, he had some players in his... Um, club. I think there was a guy called Hitish Hera. I could be saying that wrong, but he was a good bowler, but he never got looked at for national selection. And 
Max thought he was good enough. And, and there were obviously barriers. There was a ceiling. And this needed to be challenged. Ozzius, um, because, because Everton had already played some matches and then wasn't looked at again in seriousness, he had a problem with that. So if I'm not mistaken, Everton on that tour of Pakistan in 96, um, I didn't mention it, but I, I mentioned it now. So we did a tour of Pakistan 96, and that's when he and Homi Bangwa made their test debuts, or at least their debuts. Maybe Homi was test and Everton was one day's. And I think he took four wickets, Everton, in one of the one days. Um, I think we lost. But, you know, if you take four wickets in Pakistan on those flat, low, slow tracks, uh, you're pretty promising. And I don't think he played too many matches after that. I mean, he did play here and there. But, of course, Ozzius, um, I, I don't know what his background was. I think he was a finance guy. Um, but Ozzius wasn't happy that his friend or his relative wasn't getting picked. So he got together with Max and they formed this coalition. Were they, did I say campaign? It might have been called the coalition. A coalition think, to eradicate. Or it could have been the campaign. Oh, who cares? I, it's something yeah, like that. Yeah. Anyway, um, th that started the ball rolling where then they had this um, independent group that came to do a survey of Zimbabwe cricket. And I can't, it's obviously in the book, but I can't remember the dates. It could have been 2001. So maybe a year after all of that had happened. I'd already, I'd gone on a tour of India, done badly. They had gone to New Zealand, done badly. They got sent home. And, uh, uh, and it's also the story I tell of how um, Trevor Madonda could have scored a century in Wellington. Yes. And mm. they declared the innings. Yeah. And that, that, the again, first that was black another, Zimbabwe batsman could have scored the hundred. He would have. Yeah. He would have. Yeah. He would have. But he didn't. Um, he, he was stranded on seventy-seven or something, with us trying to push for victory, and New Zealand weren't interested from the, the moment they started batting. There was never going to be a result. And we, you know, some of us thought, "Oh, crumbs! If that was a white player, they would have let him get his, his hundred. You know. Mm. And and of course, years later, Hamilton Masakadza became that person, but. Trevor Madonda was to die within a few months of that happening. And I also mentioned how at his funeral, one of the white players yes. turned around to a, a group of us black players and said, oh, it's not like anyone liked him anyway. And we were like, we were stunned. I, I, I was stunned. Um, and so, uh, kind of long story short, it, 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 so when we did the survey, it, it started to reveal how people really felt in their heart of hearts, because it was anonymous. So people could say what they thought. Now, normally, uh, like in the West, um, people have a filter. And this is what I'm trying to say. Some of the, my teammates didn't have that filter. Otherwise, Neil Johnson wouldn't have said what he said. Yeah. But now that the filter wasn't an issue with, the, with an anonymous survey, um, they, they, they asked some very specific questions, like, and it was multiple choice, you know. Um, do you think racism is a big problem in Zimbabwe? Yes. Uh, uh, a is yes. Uh, B is moderately a problem. C might be not a problem at all. And C is uh, D might be like uh, you're deluded. Of course, it's not racist. You know, something like that. I'm making this up. But you get the gist. It was a scale. 
and yeah. people could answer multiple choice. And then there was also a section where you could write what you wanted. And that's when it all came out, man. People would say, oh, black people can't bat. They, they can bowl, they'll be bowlers. <laughs> yeah. They'll be bowlers, yeah. but they'll Vivian, never be batsmen. Yeah. Isaac, Vivian, Alexander Richards agrees, of course. <laughs> yeah, Gordon Greenwich, you know, there's just a number of them. <laughs> anyway, so, and then they were saying things like, one of them, one of the hardest things they said, and, it, you know, sadly, it may actually be true. And you obviously have to be, I have to be careful how I say this, but they, this one person said, oh, you can't let black people run anything in Africa. They'll destroy it. They said, they destroyed our tennis. They destroyed our hockey. They've destroyed our rugby. And now they want to destroy our crickets. And, and some of us were going, wow. Now, I say it's really sad because in, a, in, a, in one sense, those words have always become prophetic. And, and yeah. cricket has sort of, you know, sadly, cricket has been destroyed by a lot of black administrators, which is, which it really annoys me because. But, but that's, it, that's because of the fact that they're bad administrators and not because of the fact that they're no, black. I know. <laughs> I know. But, but you won't win that argument against white Zimbabweans. No, you won't. They're going to say, nah, you see, we told you. We told you. <laughs> and <laughs> so, so, so either way, what it exposed is that underneath the politeness was um, this racist undertone um, from the white side. And that, you know, there, there, were, there were definitely issues. There were issues with, so for example, there were issues with selection. There wasn't equitable selection. Um, now, I'm not even trying to suggest that there was a batsman who would replace Andy Flower or a bowler who would re replace Heath Street. But what I mean is when... Like in my case, if I played three great matches and one bad one, I'd be dropped soon after the bad one. Or in the case of Everton Matambadadzo, you know, he played a good match, then an okay match, and then you never see him again. And it seemed to be, and I write about this, that it was more who you knew than how good you were or what the results were. There were some players who never won a match for Zimbabwe. But they'd be in there every single time, just, you know, just like consistently picked, never getting lectures, always scoring 20s, 30s, maybe a 50 here and there. And it was enough. And with someone like me, it's like, take five wickets or you're gone. You know, take five wickets or you're gone. So there seemed to be an unequal playing field. If you looked at it critically, you had to look really hard. If you ask me, I don't think there was this massive racial problem in Zimbabwe cricket to the level of that was put out there. I think that there was, it was always going to take a bit of a, uh, uh, it was going to take a while for black players to start coming through and eventually it was going to happen. But what this survey did was it short-circuited that problem and it accelerated everything. So what then happened is they said, oh, we've got to have, you know, X number of white selectors, X number of black selectors. X number of white administrators, X number of black administrators. And like so a on quota. And so and yeah. Exactly. They didn't want to call it a quota, they called it a target. Okay. And then long story short, Peter Chingoka, who was one of our, uh, he, he was like the president for a long time, but he wanted a role in Zimbabwe cricket because being president was a non-paying role. You're just a figurehead. Um, and then he, he, he joined the management I can't remember as what, maybe as a manager or something. Then he got paid. So did Ozias Vute. Ozias Vute became the CEO, I think, 
Um, and then and Peter Chingoka, we must mention here, was uh, very close to uh, Robert Mugabe, right? Well, I, I believe so. I, I, I can't yeah. speak as an authority. And by the way, he's another one of those people who's died. Um, okay. <clears throat> so, so, but Peter certainly had, him and his brother, he had a brother called Paul. Mm. Paul was the chief administrator of tennis. And, mm. and he's dead as well. And Peter was the chief administrator in, 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 in cricket. When I say administrator, of course, I mean um, a non-paid role in the yeah. case until he became manager or whatever he was. Um, managing director, maybe. I could have his role wrong. But in any case, um, the quotas came and, or targets, as they called them. Um, and then the pendulum swung the other way. Yeah. Because then we had a black selector called Peter Mangongo. And I talk about how I saw the other side of the racial divide, right? So here I was playing in mainly white clubs, and they were very good to me. They took me to games when I was a little boy, etc. And then as an adult, some of them turned against me because they thought I was the guy who instigated everything in England, and they hated me for it. Um, and then Peter Mangongo invited me to play for a club called Takashinga, which was an all-black side. And I'm not sure I had a choice in the matter. You know, I could have said no, but then he was a national selector. So, yeah, he, he came to me one day and he said, uh, as the first black player, I'd like you to mentor some of our up-and-coming black kids, which to me was fantastic. Like, who wouldn't want to do that, right? That would be equivalent to someone going to, say, Virat Kohli and saying, hey, we've got this amazing orphanage with some young Indian players who are showing promise. Can you just come and do a bit of coaching once in a while? It's great for the papers. It's great for the journalists. It's great for the pictures. It's great for everything. You know, everyone gets to, to win, right? So the first black player goes to this own, this, um, um, this black club. It was founded by Bill Flower and Andy Flower. Um, it was in the high density townships. So long story short, it was a bit of a commute for me, but it's a good work. There's everything good about it, right? Everyone yeah. would turn around and go, tick, tick, tick. We've ticked every box there, except, except these guys were just as racist as some of the guys that I was dealing with over here on this side. Mm. And, and so they were, one of the guys was a guy called Amos. He would come to practice wearing a ZANU PF t-shirt. Wow. ZANU PF is the major, is the major <laughs> ruling party in Zimbabwe. And like, They've murdered people, raped people, you know, and, and, and no one says anything. It's like, it's okay for Amos to come with a Zanu PF t-shirt. And then I, I played in a match against some of my contemporaries. I think we played old Hararians. It was a home match, meaning it was played at Takashinga. Um, oh, no, hold on. It was, it was at old Hararians. Anyway, this is 20-something years ago. But anyway... The guys, the guys started yelling cuss words. They were, they were calling them uh, derogatory names. They were yelling, you know, they, like I, no disrespect, but I'd come from a middle-class background where I had played with an understanding that cricket is for gentlemen. You know what I mean? You play yeah. with a certain amount of grace and you, you play to be a sportsman who plays fair, you play hard. You, you, you respect your opponents, you respect the umpires, blah, 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 blah. That was always a part of my blood. And I hope I always played like that and came across that way. But I, I was never the kind of guy who would threaten to kill someone, yell at them, blah, blah, blah. I didn't sledge. 
I'm not saying ever, but I, I wasn't, I think I did. Um, and now here I was with people threatening war <laughs> against their white counterparts. It was wow. disgusting to me. It was terrible. So, and now the other thing I need to mention is um, in Zimbabwe, I've never, I never really fit in the country for a number of reasons. One, I was a foreign born. So I was born in Zambia. Two, I didn't speak the vernacular languages in Zimbabwe. They, they speak Shona and Debele, uh, two major languages uh, of the big tribes there. Um, and, and of course, I'm a black man, so I would never really fit with the white people. But the black people never accepted me as, as Zimbabwean either. In fact, that's something that even happens to this day. Um, I bump into people, sometimes even VIPs, who say, I'm not Zimbabwean. Oh, you were born in Kenya. Or they get that wrong. But uh, So long story short, I found myself as a nomad traveling between two groups of people who both rejected me. Mm. Like the black people looking at me going, ah, uh, you know, and so I, I would try and call them out on their behavior. Then they'd have a go at me as well. Um, and so in the end, and of course, in the end, after I did the black armband protest, which happened at the World Cup of 2003, the first people to turn against me were the, was my club, Takashinga. The old they expelled guy. you, right? They expelled me. They're, they're the first yeah. people to turn their backs on me. Um, and so it's interesting that I've got this view that no one else has in Zimbabwe of both sides of, of, of the equation. I wanted to ask you about the trajectory here because you, the in 2000 incident happens against Yorkshire, uh, the whole yep. Inkala incident. And then after yep. that, you write quite, you know, a lot about how you were quite ostracized in the team and how yep. people were not willing to talk to you. People would give you the cold yep. shoulder. You were never made to feel part of the team. And yet, Three years later, of course, you've spoken about this, uh, seeing the other side of the racial divide. But yet, three years later, here you are standing with a white man in solidarity saying that people need to stand up. That is a remarkable sort of trajectory for me to imagine uh, that what you well, were, I, went I mean, through. <laughs> I, it's quite, it's quite, I, it's quite eye-opening when you realize that human beings can be just as shallow on which, whatever their skin color is. You know, when you realize that a lot of human beings don't have depth to them. Um, you realize it's, it's, your skin color doesn't play a role. It's, it's got to do with your, your depth as a human being, how you feel about other people, what your worldview is. Do you think people are valuable? Do you think people are important? Um, does skin color matter? All of those things. And so for me, um, I, I mentioned very clearly in the book that I'm a Christian. So, Obviously, part of that worldview means that when I look at another human being, irrespective of where they are in the world, I see them as a valuable person made in God's image. So I, I'm, not, I'm not going, oh, these black people this, or oh, these white people this. I'm actually going, oh, hold on a second. We're all human, man. We've all got the same sickness. We've all got the same disease. We're all judgmental, and we all fall short of how we should be as human, as human beings. As people, we should be loving our neighbor. We should be kind. We should be full of compassion and grace and all these virtues that are ideals. But there's something in all of humanity that knows that that's right. Because we don't generally, no matter which culture you go to, we don't generally reward wrong behavior. And let me explain. Like most cultures don't like selfishness. You know, you know what I mean? Like most, if you're a politician and you're stealing millions of pounds or dollars for yourself, 
most people will go, eh, there's something wrong about that. Mm. Most people, I think, <clears throat> don't like cheaters, uh, people who cheat. Um, most people, I, I, it's, it's weird because Hollywood kind of confuses us by, you know, making bank robbers look glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And, and people who yeah. steal cars look cool. And, and Ocean's Eleven. Look cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you know. So there's this confused message to the world that says, ah, it's good if you're a liar and a thug and a thief. Uh, and, and you murder people and you shoot them with big guns. The Robin Hood syndrome. <laughs> yeah. But it's not always the Robin Hood syndrome. But what I'm saying is, most people know, you go from culture to culture, there's certain things that are ubiquitous to most cultures. People don't like selfish people. Um, they don't like people who hurt them. Um, and, and, but also, on the other hand, human beings have a common nature, which is to look out for number one first. Now, my whole worldview is different to that. Like, I, when, when I, and I think my story illustrates the kind of person I am. I hope it does. Anyway, I went to good schools. I had good values imprinted on me. I was given leadership opportunities. Um, and, and there are lots of poems that you mentioned uh, and, and pieces of prose that we talk about that, that are all talking about good values that human beings should have. You should be kind. You should be respectful. You should... You know, you should think of other people. You should defend people who can't defend themselves. You know, like the little person, like, like I did with Nkala, or, or, or the person who doesn't have a voice when their president is, 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 is oppressing them. Or, I mean, I've literally showed that by my actions, that I actually care about the little guy who doesn't have a voice. That's how I've always been. Um, I don't know why it's there. It's just in me, right? So not everyone is wired like that. There are some people who think of self-preservation first. And, and I, I always felt like, so as, as, as I started to, to look around a little bit carefully at, at this group, so I'm looking at the black people and the black people are hating on the white people. They want to kill them. You know, they're taking their farms, they're stealing from them. I, I was able to step back from that situation and, and ask the question, but like, who's going to feed the nation now? <laughs> you know, like these farmers are doing a good job. You might not like them. They might call you derogatory names, but they're still feeding you. And there's that saying, don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? Yeah. And then I'm looking over here <clears throat> and I'm seeing these white folk and they're, you know, they're, 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 they're obviously being racist. They're, they're being antagonistic to their, their black neighbors. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, you guys, you, you, there's a lesson for you to learn too here, right? Like this is not your country anymore. Before I left, there was something like 300,000 Zimbabwean white people and 14 million in the whole population. So what does that tell you? They're the minority. You can't walk around acting like you own the place when Mugabe is telling you he'll take your farm, right? So you've got to act a little bit more respectfully. Treat your fellow man as an equal, as a peer, uh, and then it might go well for you. Because some people kept their farms because they treated other people well. But what I'm saying is, of course, I was on a journey myself of self-discovery, and the biggest question I've always asked myself is what kind of person do I want to be? And I talk about this a number of times. And I talk about, there was a song that Mrs. Sher, Darby Sher, I mentioned her. She's the teacher that I revisited much later on in life to track her down and see where she was at, to thank her for the kindness she showed me when I was a little boy. 
And she, she taught the, one of the school classes a song. It wasn't my class, but it was called Fill the World with Love. And it's from a book, sorry, a film called Goodbye, Mr. Chips. So it's really old. It's like one of the 50s, I think. And so I learned that song and I loved it. And it's become a hymn for me. It's like the chorus of my life. I want to, when I leave planet Earth, I don't care about cricket wickets. No one, no one, you know, 20 years from now, even evidence of this interview is that you, you said at the beginning, not a lot of people will know who you are because they're very young. So 20 years after you've played, people might not even know who you are. You can walk into a room and you're forgotten. And, and what I've always been taught is there's something more um, permanent than, than the, the achievements. So something more permanent than achievement is, for example, leaving people thinking you defended them. Um, defend, actually going out there and spending your life helping other people. So like I spent a lot of time in Zimbabwe helping with an orphanage. And because I know those things have value beyond my life. I might die, but I might have inspired some kid to, to go on well in life. Um, and so I don't want to get too like spiritual, but I'm saying from a spiritual perspective as a person, I think there are things that are more important than taking wickets or scoring runs. Uh, when you look at how the country was being destroyed by corrupt officials, uh, and you know, kids can't go to school because of the looting and the plundering and the corruption, or the healthcare system is being destroyed, or things like that. There were lots of opposition members of the MDC who were thrown in prison on trumped-up charges by the government abusing its power. All of those things got me to a place to look at the whole situation in Zimbabwe as someone who wanted to defend the good things in Zimbabwe. Now, one of the things we haven't talked about is I wrote a song. After I went to India, I went on a tour of India in, I think, 2001, and I wrote this song called Our Zimbabwe, which was a song all about glorifying the country and how we were all together living in harmony. It was a place of peace because those are the values that I, I, I wanted to put out there. I wanted to put out into the universe a lot of, positivity, um, uh, national patriotism, things like that. You seem and, to have been inspired course, by uh, This Land is Your Land, right? The Woody Guthrie's famous song, like uh, it's similar to... No, no, well, well the, words, the words are sort of, you know, but... Okay. I write in the book, I write in the book, that it was mainly inspired by a, a song called Anthem mm. from uh, the musical called Chess. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, Sir Tim Rice, but but yes, the, the 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 producer who put the music together and helped with some of the lyrics may well have got his inspiration from there. I I can't say. Mm. Anyway, but you put all of that together, and you've got a young man. I was twenty five, twenty six, who's thinking someone has got to speak out against this rubbish in our country. We're so divided, man. You know, like we're fighting each other. And like I said, I don't think there was anyone else well-placed in Zimbabwe to speak like I did, because I had been literally on both teams. I'd been with yeah. the white-only team at the beginning of my career, and I'd been with the black-only team at the end of my career. And I could look at both groups and say, hey, you guys got something to learn. And the, the funny thing is, um, so obviously then the black armband protest comes and the opportunity comes. And Andy Flower was actually one of my biggest um, opponents throughout that whole period. He was captain when the whole... Neil Johnson thing happened. Um, and in addition, um, 
you know, he, he kind of, his anger was, was very evident against me. And again, it's a thing I don't mention in the book. I'm very clear in saying senior players. But anyway, yeah. if, if you hear me say senior players, that's coach. <laughs> there was only well, like... I guessed Andy Flower pretty... Uh, because yeah. by the end of it, when you talk about your relationship with him, it's pretty obvious that, that yeah. Yorkshire, he was part of that Yorkshire incident as well. Yeah. No, no, he didn't say anything horrible, Andy. Uh, but no, but he was... He was captain. Yeah, he was a captain then. So, yeah, exactly. So he would have had... He could have either said, okay, what's your side of the story? And I could have told it. Um, and he could have ha- he could have gone, hmm, okay, right. If he said that, and he said, yeah, okay. But he didn't. He kind of mm. thought I was the center of it, and so did the manager. They thought I kicked it all off, which I didn't. Mm. Anyway, um, so all of that to say, yes, it is quite extraordinary that I would then team up with Andy Flower, a man whom technically I didn't, I shouldn't have. I mean, I think on paper I shouldn't have worked with him. But I, I've always been one person to look beyond um, um, put it this way. I was happy I was able to look beyond our little skirmish that I felt we had. Even Dave Houghton. Dave, Dave Houghton, with all the stuff that happened with him, I'll go and have a beer with Dave. You know, even Heath Street. I've had my run-ins with Heath. I'll go and have a beer with him. I'm not that kind of person. I, but if you, you know, if you keep doing something like that to me, then of course, eventually I'm like, you know, every time I'm in your presence, I feel hurt. So I'm not going to hang out with you. But I'm a pretty easygoing guy and easy to forgive. So I'm easy to forgive. So, 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 not, no, I should rephrase that. I find it easy to forgive, I should say. Not I'm easy to forgive. <laughs> Maybe people find it hard to forgive me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, I think the quote that speaks the best uh, in the book. Uh, to me, at least what I gathered about you and your personality of the book is the famous quote by uh, Reinhold Neighbor, which says, uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot yeah. change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's right. So we had a, a, a deputy headmaster who used to say that every time he was on assembly. So I was at my high school for like six years and he said it all the time. So that yeah. was that was seared into our brains. But those are the kind of values you see that I I had imprinted on me as a young man. And I'm not sure that everyone else in the team, or I should say teams, necessarily shared my viewpoint. And on top of that, and I mentioned this as well in the book, I lived with white guys. I, I even when all of this was hitting the fan and I was talking about farms being invaded, I lived, I lived with a guy who owned a farm. So it's not like, you know, people can't throw it, uh, the accusation my way that I was, you know, totally ignorant of what was going on on this side of the fence or that side of the fence. Oh, no, I saw both sides. And, and maybe, maybe that was my problem. I think people like to know which box to put you in. Yeah. And I was, just, I was just far too sort of in the middle and too reasonable about the way I saw things. And, and, and maybe that, that meant the problem with that is I got shot by both sides. So both yeah. sides turned on, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's the tragedy. But but I must mention here, you spoke about you, you you spoke about your best placed. You were best placed because you saw the racism from both sides. But given the condition in Zimbabwe, you spoke about the targets in Zimbabwe. You spoke about and, and you yourself was an icon. I mean, the first black cricketer to play for Zimbabwe is not something to be taken lightly. You were at everything was going for you. I mean, had you not done that protest. 
you could have actually gone on to have not only a much like a much longer career but your standing in zimbabwe cricket could have been so much more enhanced and you would have been given everything on your platter but yet potentially yeah <laughs> potentially yeah. yeah yeah potentially i mean it's possible i could have played on for another 5 or 6 years you know um but you know looking back i obviously also know that um i wasn't the greatest player and they were starting to to sort of think that oh maybe i was over the hill blah 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 and and, and one of the ironies is during that last world cup i was actually bowling i was back i think in my humble opinion to my 98 form i was actually strong i'd gone to the gym i was i was bowling well so the, and in fact a few about a month before the world cup i took six wickets for 28 against kenya yes i know they're not the greatest cricketing nation but only a few months later they were in the semis semi final semis yeah there? yeah they were in the semis so that same team i got six wickets for 28 against them and that's what actually got me into the world cup squad I, again i was out of the squad people wouldn't believe us but although i got picked for the the last 14 or 15 whatever it was for the world cup squad i wasn't in the top 30 until i took those six wickets for 28 Correct. you're right about that they hadn't yeah. see so so i they'd already started to write me off um so it just i'm not saying that caused me to do this the stamp but i'm just saying there was there was nothing compelling me to believe that i had a long future in zimbabwe cricket okay okay so so the, you may be right but perhaps on the other hand um i made you know you know there was that in 2004 remember heat streak and uh, a oh, yes. of other white, 15 white players, players. Yeah they they all resigned and then got fired. Yeah. And Zimbabwe cricket started from scratch basically with a young team mainly black. It's and at that time we also lost some players like uh you'd think okay Inkala and Dion Ibrahim will come to the fore. But no, they they didn't hang around much longer after that. So it's very possible I would have been a a victim of that purge as well. But they possible, all decided but- they decided Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, possible. But I, I I'm trying to highlight point, the difference. I get your point. I'm though. trying to highlight the difference between Andy Flower's position and yours. Andy Flower was at the end of his career. He has he had decided yeah. that that would be the last World Cup. He he was going to move to England. Uh his family yeah. was going to move there. He had everything planned for what was going to come and so he took the stand. I mean, not taking anything away from him. Andy Flower did a great yeah. thing by taking that stand. But I'm saying for yeah. you I'm trying to understand the process of taking that risk with no plan B and the next thing you know you're getting yeah. death threats. <laughs> I know. You see the thing is it's it's almost impossible for me to convey that in my the very center of my being as the process play, played out I just knew it was the right thing to do. I I can't I can't say it any more stronger than that i just knew it was the right thing to do i did not want to go down in history as someone who saw my fellow man suffering struggling being oppressed and and being silent that's the whole um um the quote by edmund burke all that's necessary for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing 
my motivation was I will not be silent. I will not be one of the people who does nothing. And it may cost me. Now, there was half of me um, that also thought, yeah, you know, healthy debate is permitted in Zimbabwe. You know, you're allowed to hold an, a political opinion in Zimbabwe without getting killed for it. I was obviously wrong <laughs> and mistaken, but there was a part of me that thought, you know what, I can still live here and, and I'll make this protest, but people have done this kind of thing before and carried on. So that that was definitely some naivety from my 26-year-old mind. I thought Zimbabwe actually... You see, and here's the irony. Zimbabwe will say, no, we are a democracy. We do tolerate dissenting voices. Um, just, just don't do it here. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so on the one hand, they, they say they're a democracy, but the minute that democratic values are demanded of them, they, they prove by their actions that they're not. And, and I'm not even talking about election controversies, um, uh, the brutality of the Mugabe regime against its own people. I, I'm just talking about people being free to express themselves, which actually is defended in the constitution. We as Zimbabweans have a freedom of speech enshrined in the constitution. But of course, in, in reality, uh, you can say what you like in Zimbabwe, but we'll kill you if you say what we don't like. And, and then there is this extraordinary scene with which you begin the book. There is this match against Pakistan that is about to happen. And had that match happened and had Pakistan beaten Zimbabwe, then Zimbabwe mm. don't go into the Super 6 stage, which means they That's don't right. go to South Africa, which means you continue to live in Zimbabwe, which could be basically a complete threat to your life. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Um, who knows? So, so what I do know is that there was a minister, I won't name him, uh, but a minister was overheard in his office saying, um, that a longer guy thinks he's so clever. Just wait till the World Cup's over and we'll sort him out. And uh, put it this way, this minister is a man who is known to have blood on his hands. Um, and um, there's every chance that I could have been imprisoned. Um, they would have found a reason because they're very good at that. Um, and indeed... Um, I think my life in Zimbabwe would have been very difficult after that. I don't think I would have been able to stay. I would have had to flee into exile anyway if I were to preserve my life or, or live what people would call a normal life. So um, in a nutshell, yes, I, I agree that that match was pivotal. It, but, so, but that's, that's why I appeal to my faith and I talk about how that was divine intervention from my opinion. Uh, in my opinion, I believe that uh, there was something quite miraculous that happened there in that there was a cyclone which um, came from Mozambique. And it, if you look at the path, you can even go to Wikipedia and, and, and you, can, you can type in Cyclone Japheth and there's an image of the path that it went. And I kid you not, it was going straight for Bulawayo. Um, of course, it didn't get to Bulawayo, but it created enough rain to get the match abandoned as a draw, and we got the points in place of England and Pakistan. So that was, that was really a crucial um, moment in my life to, in, in determining 
what would happen next? And and then we got to South Africa, and of course, uh, we were never going to qualify further than the Super Six stage because just the way they structured the points in that World Cup, I can't remember if it was Super Six or Super Eight, but whatever it was, it, it was just the points you took in against any other opponents that went through yeah. were the points you carried. So you, if yeah. you, you know, if you beat all the other three countries that went through in your group, um, in your side of the pool, uh, then you, you took, that's why Kenya made the semis. They could have lost every match in the same, in the, in that round and then got through to the semis. It was because they went in with so many points because they'd beaten all the other sides that got through with them. Yeah. Um, so we went, even if we won every single match, I think we were, we were out of it. Um, and so that's when I obviously started to make plans to, uh, and then there was the Zimbabwe secret police for watching these games as well. <laughs> that's right. There was two things, two things that happened. My fiance at the time ended the relationship. Hmm. Now she was a, a relative of Mugabe's. She was a niece or something like that. So, um, I don't blame her. There's no hard feelings with her making that decision. But in, in a weird, perverse way, it actually helped me make the decision a lot quicker that I wouldn't be going back to Zimbabwe. So that happened maybe two nights or the night before the final match against Sri Lanka in East London, yeah. maybe East London. Um, and then the next day, the secret police were at the game. Uh, uh, the, the, one of our, um, bodyguards, if you can call him that, um, came to me and he said, listen, I don't want to alarm you, but I've just heard there's six secret police from Zimbabwe who are in the VIP box. <laughs> I was like, like, really? Six secret police in the VIP box? Like, what, what would they be doing here? So the, the conclusion I drew was that they were definitely up. They were there for no good. They were probably there to escort me back to Zimbabwe. I could be wrong. I, I will not say with absolute certainty that that, that was the case. Yeah. That they were there to pick us up. But, but for me, it was strange. I had never, ever seen secret police, uh, that many secret police in a foreign country uh, at any of my matches. And I played for eight seasons. It was bizarre. So that's when I, I decided I was going to announce my retirement from World's Cricket uh, because of, uh, you know, death threats and secret police, et cetera, issues still in Zimbabwe. I wrote another statement. I'd been told by Ozzy's Vute not to release any more statements, but, hey, it was my last hurrah. So I threw my hat in the ring and, and decided to go out with a bang. I find that more, and, more extraordinary because people forget that. You actually put out two statements in that World Cup and both were yeah. as powerful as each other. But people have forgotten the second one and I'm glad that you brought it up. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that, that, was, that was it. It was basically confirming some of the earlier things um, that we, we talked about, but uh, just a little bit more of a definitive, right, this is the end, I'm leaving cricket. It's un I can't carry on. It's untenable. I've got death threats. I can't go back. Um, and so that, that, that was the start of my new life. And, and then, of course, they got very petty. So the, the Zimbabwe manager, Babu Memon, had the drugs unit come and get me to give a urine sample. 
just so you know to see if they you know they, they could find something in my system to leave so me then they could nail you yeah, yeah they, uh, I, I assume they found nothing because they've never been in touch with me and never written about it but I didn't take any drugs or anything you know so mm. um, uh, and then then the manager was told um, by Ozias Vute who was now the big cheese that same guy I spoke to in a parking lot who was a nobody in Zimbabwe cricket in the space of two years went from a nobody to running the sport, to basically yeah. telling the manager to kick me off the team, give me my air ticket, and I was on my own. I wasn't even allowed to go on the coach with my teammates um, to the airport the next day. They wanted me to pay my own hotel bill. Um, man, it was, it was just like, wow. They just like, everyone turned against me. Um, and, then, and then I said, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go hang out with with people who, who want me. So I phoned up a pastor friend of mine in Johannesburg who got me to stay with them, the most extraordinary family called the Webb family. They were Americans. They hosted me for uh, about a month or so at no cost. Um, I hung out with them. I went to Cape Town with them on a road trip. Uh, and then by this stage, I'd already started talking with the British people um, there were some really good people in England who wanted to help me get over to, to get a refuge there. I didn't go as a refugee or an asylum seeker. I wanted to work. So they, they got me to, um, they, they organized a work permit. I was going to work for the BBC and Channel 4 to do some commentary that year. And I was also going to work on a more, uh, uh, a more substantial work permit with the Lashings World Eleven which yeah. is a touring cricket team that travels around the UK. Um, so, and then there was this super rich uh, uh, man who was benevolent enough to fund your ticket and, and through right. his so, private jet or something. <laughs> well, yes, you've got some of it. Um, so, so a man, uh, so, so incidentally, one of the people who helped me get over uh, to England was a man called Tony Brennan. He was with the foreign office in, in, in London. Lovely man. He ended up becoming a dear friend. And sadly, he passed away, oh, uh, if not last year, the year before. And this gentleman who I'm about to tell you about, he's also dead. So, like, there's just, like, I told you, there's so many people who passed on. So, uh, um, a man had watched me give an interview on TV and, and, and he wanted to help me. So, I'm cutting a long story short, but this man was called Vernon and he wanted to help. And he got, he got in touch with me. He somehow tracked my phone down and like only three people in the world knew my phone number. So I was of course very, very nervous as to how he got my number. But he said, it's okay. Oh, well, I want to help you. I've seen, heard your story and my boss, I've talked to my boss and he's keen to help you. So I walked, uh, sorry, they, they sent a chauffeur, took me to these offices they were called inter-air. In fact, let me just back up a little bit. So after all the work permit stuff was sorted out, I knew that um, I wanted to go to England. Um, the gentleman, David Fulb, who ran the, worship, the, the Lashings World Eleven, which is the team I ended up with for about nine seasons, um, he said, uh, just get yourself over here. So he, need, he was going to pay for my accommodation and he was going to give me a salary, but he just wanted but I needed to fly myself over. Now, the big problem was I didn't have money. 
um, the, the, the money I had was like my lunch money that the management had given, you know, for the last month that I'd been in South Africa or, or weeks, however long it was. I'd saved up a bit, but it wasn't enough to buy an air ticket. And so I had to, I would have to travel to an ATM machine about, you know, a kilometer or a mile away from where I was staying with the Webb family. And I'd have to do that maybe 10 to 15 times. I can't remember. And on maybe the fifth day, I was thinking to myself, oh gosh, it would be easier if someone just bought me an air ticket. Uh, so anyway, I went back and there was a voice on message and that's how Vernon got in touch with me. And then I got back in touch and that's how I got to the office. So I got to the office. I was chauffeur driven in a Mercedes Benz, beautiful car. Vernon introduced me, said, you want to have a cup of coffee? And I, uh, I think I might've said yes. And I started looking around at pictures on the man's wall. And there were pictures of this man standing next to George Bush senior. And then another picture of him next to George Bush junior. And uh, of course, these were official photos in front of the American flag, like in the Oval Office. So I was thinking, who is this man? <laughs> you know, and, like, and as you said, thankfully, there was no photo of him with Mugabe. <laughs> 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 so I thought, I thought, man, whoever this is, he's obviously got a bit of clout. And uh, I didn't know if he was Secret Service, Intelligence, CIA. I didn't know who he was. But anyway, he walked into the office um, He's a big man. He's a, he's a tall man, taller than me. Wore a nice, smart suit. And he spoke with a very thick American accent. And he said, are you the guy who ticked off Mugabe? I said, yes, sir, that's me. He said, well, I want to help you. And then he goes on to tell me a couple of stories. Of, he told me that when he was a young man with a young family, he lost uh, all his money in a bad deal. And that um, this gentleman helps him. He didn't tell me who it was, but I suspect it might have been George Bush uh, Jr. or one of them. I don't know. That's just my suspicion. I don't know. Anyway, he said the second story was, and this man gave him a loan. He gave him a loan for $5,000 or something like that. And he said, don't pay me back. Just pass it along. The next person who you see who needs help, pass it along. So he did tremendous work. Um, he did tremendous work with HIV victims in South Africa. And he also um, had a website called Pass It Along. Um, dot com, I think it was. In any case, the last story he told me is of how he, he lived in Zambia. He, he started an airline there. And the president of Zambia, uh, Chiluba, wanted half of his company. And he said, no, I'm not going to give you half his company. He said, okay, I'll throw you in jail. So he said he knows what it's like to have to like leave a country because the president is after him. So he said, I want to help you. He said, what do you need? Do you need money? Do you need an air ticket? I'll help you get to wherever you need to get to. And of course, I was, I was blown away because I'd only a day or so before I'd thought it would be easier if someone bought me an air ticket. So I said to him, I don't need money. I think I'm okay with money. But if you, if you could get me an air ticket to fly to London, that would be amazing. So he said, because I already, by this stage, my, I had my visa and my passport, etc. He said, you come back on Tuesday we'll fly you out to London. And with that, he shook my hand and he walked out. I never saw him again. He died in a plane crash in 20, the mid-20-teens, 2015, 2016. Ironically, like in a plane crash. He did. He, no, he used to love his flying. And yeah. he crashed in New Mexico or something like that. Just recreational flying. Um, and um, 
yeah, so he kept his word, man. He flew me over. I went to England. I started a new life. Um, and um, I actually got in touch with Vernon many, many years later. He actually lives in Melbourne here in Australia. And I, I asked him for the full story about, and, and, and I recorded it. I haven't released it. Um, but Oh, wow. That would be great to he, hear. He had, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot more political than I thought. See, I thought he'd just mm. seen it on TV or something, but actually it was a bit more political and involved. So I don't know when the right time will be. Maybe my, the sequel to my book, maybe. Blood, oh, yeah, Sweat yeah, yeah. and Treason 2. <laughs> so have you, Henry, chapter. have you gone to, have you gone back to Zimbabwe ever, Henry? I haven't. I've never been back. Oh, wow. And is there, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, you, you said this, you spoke your mind, you said something because you believed in it, and then you've never got a chance to go back to your country again. Yeah, well, I, you won't believe... You won't believe how many Zimbabweans hate me, man. You have mm. no idea how not everyone thinks that what I did was the right thing. There's so much vitriol that comes my way from Zimbabweans who I thought I was representing who make it very unlikely that I will go back. Uh, right, rightfully so, someone will turn to me and say, well, it's not everyone. Surely you have some admirers in Zimbabwe, and I guess I do. But I've moved on. I've got, you know, I've got a couple of kids here in Australia. They were born in England. I've got an Australian wife. We live here. This is home. I live in Adelaide. I love this country. Uh, I became a citizen um, a few um, a few months ago. Not even a few. Yeah, it's about a month or so now. Um, they this country's been very kind to me. They opened their arms up wide open. Same as England. England was good to me. Um, and I've, I've kind of, in my heart, I've sort of moved on from Zimbabwe. A lot of people don't understand. It was, it was 20 years ago. You know, um, the Zimbabweans didn't want to give me a, a new passport. They made it very clear I wasn't a citizen. I write about this in my book. It's the last chapter that I write about. And so I, you know, I moved on. I, I really did. I, do I still love Zimbabwe? Of course. I, I still watch them when they play. But... I feel resoundly rejected by them, resoundingly rejected by them. I feel many people misunderstood what I was doing, who I was representing. Many people don't understand, and, and I'm glad you get this, that I didn't have to do this. I didn't need to do it. And I know I didn't need to do it. But I think it's an important part of being human that you say something when you see evil in the world. Um, at least I hope it is. Um, and so... For me, I would at least have hoped that some Zimbabweans understood the price that I paid and that I could have just actually continued as a cricketer, enjoyed my life. I would have, you know, as I said earlier, I don't know how many more years I would have had. It's possible I could have been a legend in Zimbabwe right now. Um, it's possible I could be adored and loved by everyone. And I could be very wealthy with my life beyond cricket. But I chose the hard road because it seemed like the right road to me. And... You know, it's a shame. Zimbabwe is struggling even now. Uh, just recently, there was a documentary put out by Al Jazeera about um, uh, um, gold smuggling and how billions of dollars are being lost from the economy because of the corruption. And it's the same stuff that we dealt with in the early 2000s, the same stuff. 
In fact, I googled recently. I googled uh, the Zimbabwe news, and I saw how opposition leaders were being, you know, again they were being victimized. They were being put. So here, it's interesting you bring this up, right? I write about this in my book. That one of the things that really impacted me before the black armband protest was a black politician called Job Sikala being beaten up, beaten up by the yeah. beaten up by the the army. The army came. If I'm not mistaken, he might have had a pregnant wife. They beat him up, and I think they threw him in prison. They might not have. That same man was just thrown in prison the other day. Oh, just seriously. Recently. The same oh, man. <laughs> if you Google Job Sikala or Job, J-O-B-S-I-K-H-A-L-A, you will find that he's back in prison, man. The same man who 21 or so years ago was an inspiration for the black armband protest is back in prison. Oh, wow. wow. So on the one hand, on the one hand, he shows he's got tenacity. And on the other hand, it just shows that... Um, Zanu PF is a leopard that doesn't change its spots, man. They're the same. Same nonsense they were doing a while back, they're still doing. So what, what is this effect then in your book, in the last chapter, which is a fantastic crystallization of everything that you've written before and cricket and politics, you say that it's like throwing darts at an elephant, right? I mean, ultimately, do you ever look back and say, nothing has changed? Or do you just say, it's what you felt was right and you did what was right. I think, see, I think as a young person who, was, who had optimism in his heart, I honestly felt that positive change could come out of it. Obviously, I didn't do it hoping for negative things to happen. But I truly believed that there would be some kind of galvanizing around the idea of people living together in harmony, working together, the powers that be not abusing their power, etc. I really did believe in it. I still believe in it as a concept, as an ideal. Um, you know, people write songs about this, don't they? Um, you know, Paul McCartney, uh, uh, Stevie Wonder, Ebony and Ivory living together in harmony. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, we chuckle about it, but it's actually, it's got a great yeah. message, you know. It's, it's it, like in a country like Zimbabwe, where we've got this torrid history of racial uh, segregation that goes back to the 50s and 60s, and Mugabe was thrown in prison. Another guy, Joshua Nkoma, was thrown in prison. They, they were bright minds, and they lost a lot of their youth trying to do the right thing. They came to power, at least Mugabe did, and he got corrupted. And one of the funniest things is, um, I talk about this, when was it? Um, yes, it was the 5th Brigade. So when, when the 5th Brigade started raiding Matabiland and killing people. Yeah, the massacres. Uh, yeah. The massacres. Mugabe brought, do you know what rule he used? He used uh, the laws that governed a state of emergency that were put in place by Ian Smith, his predecessor in 95, 75, I beg your pardon. 1975. The same law that he, the, 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 the same rule that he fought against, when he made it into power, he just used the same laws to oppress his people that the other guy used to use. Yeah, yeah. And it just makes you wonder, like, what was independence all about?
you know, after, after it's all said and done, I think there was an optimism that I held, which might have been misplaced. Because I honestly thought Zimbabweans will see that I'm fighting for them. I'm not fighting for myself. For me to fight for myself, I'll do what some of these white cricketers did. I'll just think about preserving my life, preserving my, 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 my livelihood, my farm, my whatever. I didn't do any of that. I was happy to lay it all on the table with a belief that human beings can actually fight for a higher cause. And, I, you know, I guess this is why movies like Braveheart or Gladiator really appeal to the human psyche is remember how I said earlier, people don't, most cultures don't like selfishness, but they, most cultures appreciate and know self-sacrifice. And they think it's a good virtue. Unless you're Henry Alonga and you played cricket for Zimbabwe and you wore a black armband for your people. If that's who you are, they will hate you (laughs) to the grave for doing that. Anywhere else in the world, people will say he was brave. You know, he did what it was, governed by the power of his convictions. He laid it all down. He laid his own career down. He, he, but, you know, in Zimbabwe, we just do things differently. And don't misunderstand. I, I don't think I lost that much in the big scheme of things. Like, yes, I, I, you know, I had to move on. There was a high price to pay, for sure. But I, I think I, I gained a lot by becoming a better person um, after cricket, post-cricket. Life's taken me in a totally different direction. Um, and, and of course, I'm now a father. I'm, I'm, I'm a husband. I've got a lot of charities I support. I, I support a prison charity. So I visit prisons and I talk to prisoners. Um, that's where my, 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 my life is, man. I, I, of course, I speak in schools. I've spoken in hundreds of schools, uh, encouraging them about how to sift through what's important in life. Of course, I don't encourage people to wear black armbands against their, their leaders, but, you know, I, I certainly tell them to consider what's right. Because, of course, you can live a life where you just go, um, you, you live for number one, you, you live to make lots of money, billions of dollars if, you, if, if you're capable. And even then, people will tell you, people who made, make it to the, re, to the top of their profession, even in sport, people can, can and will tell you that the honest ones anyway, um, there is somewhat uh, an emptiness that, that carries over after all that success. And some people, as a result of that, don't know what to make of their lives after their careers. They, they can't define themselves beyond basketball, cricket, tennis, whatever it is, because it's so defined who they were. People recognize them as that tennis player. When it stops, yeah, you know, people remember them for a few years, and then 20, 30 years down the line, you're forgotten, unless you're invited to the... Australian Open and everyone gives you a standing ovation. But from my perspective, I've, I had none of that. I, even now I get none of that. I was never given a send-off. You know how they give you these? Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm never given a send-off. I was never celebrated. I heard um, that there were some nets which were named in my honor in Bulawayo. And I heard they're in a state of disrepair. So... That just maybe that sums up my cricket career. It's <laughs> <You know? laughs> quite a quite a an apt summation. <laughs> yes, I, my my the, my whole legacy 
is um, a disheveled net somewhere in Bulawayo that nobody knows. I couldn't I'm, even Google it to find out where they are. I don't even know where they are. <laughs> I am laughing because this is such a tragedy and not because this is a comedy, by the way. But oh, I'm my, not final offended, don't worry. <laughs> my final question to you is, 26-year-old cricketer today playing international cricket says that they are extremely saddened by what is happening in their country, whichever country it may be. They come to you and say, I want to speak up, but I'm not sure. What would you say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, something, something like that kind of happened recently here in Australia. Oh, really? Oh. Yes. So there's a rugby player called Israel Falau who put a scripture up on his Instagram account. And he copped a lot of flack for it because I think it was perceived as being um, anti-LGBTQI, you know, all okay. of that. And um, he ended up being sacked. And then he went to court and he got paid millions of dollars. And I was asked this question by a journalist and I was surprised by my own answer. <laughs> And I sort of said, you know, knowing all that I know, I think he should just play. He should just play rugby and just enjoy his career and be a shining light in the world of rugby. <laughs> what? Isn't, isn't that a, Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And maybe, just maybe, it's the fact that I look back on my protest and I see that maybe perhaps I earned a little bit of respect from certain corners of the world but the majority of them didn't get it. The majority of people didn't appreciate it, care for it, or understand it. And my fear to this 26-year-old person is whether the world will get them and understand what they're doing. Because I've done it, I've been there, I've walked through it, I've said my piece, I've dealt with the ramifications and the consequences. And although I would do it again, I don't know I would advise someone else to do it unless they are driven by the power of their convictions and they turn around to me and say, I have to do this. If they say, I have to do this, I'll be like, go for it. Uh, my, uh, you know, my prayers are with you. Good luck. And I, I wish you success, you know, but um, I think a lot of us think we can change the world when we're younger. And then when, as we get older, we just realize that although that's a wonderful ideal to hold to that really what you can do is you can change your little pockets, your mm. sphere of influence around you. And that is enough. You don't have to change the world. You change the world for the people that get it. And this is why I would do it again is they were enough people in the world that got it. And uh, Mugabe stayed in power for another 14 years before he was deposed. He won another election in 2008, which of course was, um, it, it, was, it was overrun with accusations of vote rigging and all of that. Lots of people got tortured, murdered under his regime, even after I left. So nothing tangible perhaps changed, but you know what? I still got to do all the things I wanted to do in my life. You know, I played international cricket. I, 
I don't know if you know, but I was on the, on on a competition here called The Voice, which is a singing yes. competition. I loved that video. So, it was amazing. So, so I was on The Voice. Um, I'm a father. I've got a couple of kids. I'm going to start releasing more music. I'm going to release the audio book. And on top of that, I've gone back into athletics. Um, I, 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 uh, I loved uh, doing athletics when I was a young boy and I could easily have gone into athletics. Um, in the end, cricket dominated my life, but all the major loves in my life I have, I have done except for athletics. So I've, I've, I still want to do more in the world of acting perhaps. Um, maybe I'll do some homemade movies. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be terrible, but maybe. But, you know, looking back on my life, I don't feel like I, I am poorer because I didn't take 150 test wickets. It might have been nice to take another 100. Um, it might have been nice to take another 100 one-day international wickets. But I don't think that after 150, I would have then felt satisfied. Because I think there's a saying in cricket, go big or go home, Right. So whether I've taken 68 wickets or 100 or 200, I'm not in the conversation. I would have been in the conversation if I took 500 wickets. Do you understand what I'm saying? So yeah, for me, yeah. I, I dipped my toe into the world of cricket and I achieved some extraordinary things. I mean, I think I still have the best uh, bowling figures in a one-day international at six for 19 against England. And I still think I've got the third best. Unless someone's done something more recently, I think that's true. And for, you know, for a, a man who used to throw the ball um, at the age of 18, whose career should have ended after that, I'm actually quite happy with that. You know what I mean? I, 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 I threw in another three or four match-winning performances to win for my country. It would be nice if I threw in another 10. But another 10 doesn't make me 10 times better as a cricketer I, because I'm not in the conversation of the greats. So 68 wickets, 58 wickets versus 300. Yeah, it's nice to be in the 300 club, I guess, because I know that cricket is all about statistics. But honestly speaking, it wouldn't make much of a difference to me. For me, what I can do is I can look back on my career and I can say, you know, I had the opportunity to stand up for what was right, for something that goes beyond the cricket field. And I did it in the spirit of cricket. You know, the, 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 I did it in the spirit of cricket. I was able to do a number of things. One, I was able to look to this side, look at the white guys, look at the black guys, and stay in the middle and go, actually, everyone's losing here. Why don't we try and work together? I was able to look beyond my own circumstances and, uh, and look at the bigger cause, which was to try and get Zimbabweans united. Um, and you know what? I don't think of it as a great loss. So I think looking, you know, looking forward, I'm still energetic enough for another 10 to 15 years to continue doing all the things that I felt I might have missed out on. So like, if I want to play cricket, I, I could. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff happening in the world at the moment. There's Masters Leagues and all sorts of things going on, you know. If I really want to indulge myself in that, I could. Although, like I said, my desire right now is in athletics. Uh, and in particular, throwing the javelin. I was inspired by Mr. Chopra at the last Olympics. So, 
you might see me in the Masters um, um, competition here in Adelaide, which is happening in November. Um, and I want it's, it's the Australian Masters, so over 30s. And uh, I, I want used to when I was a boy, trying to get into the national side. I'm going to do gym. I'm going to get strong. And I want to see how it goes. So watch this space. I'll obviously put be, it up on, on. That would be quite a, quite a circle, Henry. Uh, called for chucking in your very first test and then actually chucking the javelin to glory. Uh, as uh, you why not? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the perfect way to finish my story. If I get gold at the Australian Masters in the javelin, I can retire and I can die. I'll be a happy man. <laughs> Fantastic. We wish you all the best for that. You spoke about go big or go home. That might not have happened in terms of your overall cricket career, but on that particular World Cup, trust me, from a purely moral point of view, you really went big and sadly couldn't go home, but you went big for sure. (laughs) I see what you did there. Well, I want to actually, no one has ever pointed that out to me. <laughs> you went big, but didn't go home. <laughs> Never I didn't did. go home. <laughs> Henry, I have to finish yeah. with this poem that you quote, uh, which I think captures this whole, your whole sort of stance, your career, your, your outlook as a person and everything so well. This is the poem Risk by uh, mm. Leo Bascalia, who was this famous, you know, educator and uh, poet in, in, from America. But this is such a beautiful poem. Can I just say? Can I just yes. say? Yes. And I'm doing this in, I'm putting a minor correction in my audiobook. I think the actual original author of it was a lady called Janet Rand. Oh, really? So it, might, it might actually be credited to her rather than Leo Bascaglia. But go ahead, go ahead. Okay, uh, let me just say it's a poem called Risk. Uh, you know, we, you can figure out who wrote it. Uh, I'm sure like there's plenty of Google and other sources that will help you. But just the essence of the poem is so beautiful. I'm starting to quote it. To laugh is to risk being a fool. To weep is to risk appearing sentimental. To reach out to another is to risk involvement. To express feelings is to risk exposing your true self. To place your ideas, your dreams before the crowd is to risk their loss. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To live is to risk dying. To hope is to risk despair. To try is to risk failure. The person who risks nothing does nothing, has nothing, and is nothing. They may avoid suffering and sorrow, but they simply cannot learn, feel, change, grow, love, or live. Risks must be taken because the greatest hazard in life is to risk nothing. Only a person who risks is free. End of quote. So, Henry, thank you so much. Inspiring book. My pleasure. Terrific book on so many aspects. Please pick it up. Please listen to the audiobook, which is the expanded version of the book where Henry has added many other things. I will put a link to that. Please follow Henry. He's on Twitter and uh, I'm sure you can get all the news about the latest happenings in his singing circles and javelin circles and everything else that he's doing there. <laughs> and thank you. It's a great honor. I mean, rarely have I had such an enriching conversation on this podcast on matters beyond cricket. We usually talk a lot about cricket and, you know, we have a number of guests on the show, but this has been extremely rewarding for me 
to talk to a cricketer about matters so important and so fundamental to the way we live. Thank you so much. Thank you, mate. Regular reminder that uh, 81allout.com is our website. At 81allout is our Twitter handle. Please rate and review us. It really helps our podcast. And uh, I'll put links to some of the books we've republished recently. Gideon Hayes' Summer Game is something that we came out with recently, a classic that he published in 1997. Mike Marquis's uh, War Minus the Shooting and Mike Coward's Cricket Beyond the Bazaar are the previous two books we've put out. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll join you soon in about a week's time for the next episode. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wide.